This is CNN Breaking News. Hello, everyone. We're glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Our Aaron Burnett joins us again live in Ashkelon, Israel. It is 6 a.m. here on the East Coast, 1 p.m. in Tel Aviv, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on the ground right now as the war between Israel and Hamas intensifies. We are expecting to hear from him shortly. He is meeting one-on-one now with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as airstrikes and artillery continue to pound Gaza. The humanitarian crisis there is spiraling and hostages, including Americans, are still being held captive this morning. And this is what it looks like in Gaza City right now. Israel is now vowing to keep power, water, and fuel cut off to the Gaza Strip until Hamas releases hostages abducted in their surprise attack. The International Committee of the Red Cross is sounding the alarm. It says hospitals will turn into morgues with cancer patients, babies in incubators, and the elderly at serious risk. Meanwhile, there are hundreds of thousands of Israeli troops massing near the Gaza border with tanks and artillery as Netanyahu vows to crush Hamas. We have team coverage across the region, also here at home. Let's get right to our colleague, Erin Burnett. She is live at a hospital in Ashkelon. And Erin, this is a hospital that got hit yesterday in the strikes that you were reporting from, and also that has treated hundreds of patients since the initial attack over the weekend. What are you seeing and hearing? Uh, yes, Poppy, that's right. And it's very busy here. So we're in Ashkelon and in the distance we hear the thuds of those strikes that you and Phil are re- referring to uh, in Gaza. A very busy morning for the IDF forces with strikes on Gaza. And here uh, at this hospital, it was hit yesterday. Uh, it has been a target. 650 people actually uh, were treated here for the actual attacks, the terror attacks uh, on Saturday. 70 people came here yesterday uh, as a result of those strikes that we were reporting from uh, with you and Phil all morning. And as you can see behind us, uh, it's, it's busy. Uh, this is the ER and the trauma unit entrance. But what you're seeing here uh, is really uh, food and assistance for first responders. They say that they have been receiving donations and help from all around Israel ever since these strikes uh, started. And that's what you're actually seeing behind us. So here in this hospital, um, obviously used to being a target. They're, they're accustomed to that. And as I said, hundreds of people, you said probably 650 people were treated here from the actual attacks themselves. And I understand that 30 of them, 30 of them are in serious condition. We're here six days later. They are still in the hospital. Aaron, you're about, I think, roughly eight miles away from the border of Gaza. You were obviously reporting from there all day yesterday. When you talk to hospital officials, when you talk to people uh, like those that are behind you right now, what kind of preparation are they making for what's expected to come in the days and weeks ahead? There is a resignation, I would say, Phil, and also there is, you know, trepidation. People are aware that something is going to happen. They believe something is going to happen. They're sure something is going to happen, but they dread it. And I think that's the fair way to describe it. And as we're standing here, and I, I know you can't necessarily hear it, but we hear the regular thuds of those strikes in Gaza. So for here, it's not just a talking about it. It's actually something palpable that they can feel and they can hear and has obviously affected their community. And as you point out, uh, with Gaza itself, as we stand in this hospital here that has received hundreds of people uh, suffering from the attacks and these ongoing strikes, uh, in Gaza, they say that hospitals are at risk of a humanitarian crisis. Poppy, you referred to that because of, they say, the electricity and fuel shortage. They're saying the hospitals are going to be turned into morgues there. That's what we're hearing from uh, officials over in Gaza. But obviously, you have the Israelis saying at the same time there's going to be no electricity, no fuel, no water to Gaza until those 150 hostages are returned to Israel. 
Yeah. And that is the question of what what does what does that portend? Yesterday, when you were with us, Aaron, right there on the border as well, you were talking about and we could see in your live shots all of the equipment and the troop buildup right there on the border. And that begs the question that everyone has been asking about a ground invasion, if that will happen, when that could happen. What have you seen today so far? Well, we've seen it continue. There's there's no change. And it does raise the question, Poppy and Phil, of how long you could stay in uh, what, you know, military experts will call a crouch, right? That you're crouched down and you're ready to go. Mm -hmm. You can't sustain that position for an indefinite period of time or even for a long period of time. So when you have 300,000 troops amassed uh, along this border here, uh, you need to make a decision. And I think that's the real question uh, that they have is exactly when. Now, an IDF a spokesperson uh, told me that I spoke to overnight that referring to it as being as something to happen within days. And I'm not saying that they were giving out information there, but I think it just reflects the sense that what happens uh, will happen, and it will happen in the near future, that this isn't something where you can indefinitely, uh, as we saw with, with Putin, right, for months and months, right. start to build up along a border. That is not the situation we're looking at right now at all. Uh, Aaron, I, I think you made such a great point. This is not abstract where you are. The, the feeling is palpable. You're hearing uh, the bangs and booms. We watched you cover it throughout the morning yesterday. Um, is the tempo increasing, decreasing? Talk about what's happening this morning, what you're seeing and feeling. I can tell you what we've seen so far in Ashkelon uh, is, is really just constant thudding. And I'm, I'm not going to say, Phil, that it sounds like it's more than yesterday. It, it, maybe it does a little bit. Um, and I guess that's, that's as far as I would go with it. But they are regular strikes. They are constant. So, you know, you hear a thud seconds later or a minute or two later, you hear another thud. And as we say, and on the receiving end of that, uh, is, is Gaza, where you keep hearing about the, the uh, injury toll, the death toll going up, and those hospitals becoming overwhelmed because of people obviously seeking care, but also because of the fact that they don't have electricity, fuel, uh, or water. And we also understand, even from those who may have supplies or generators, like a hospital might, uh, or the UN might, you're in a situation where, because nothing can come in, even with that sort of a backup, you only have a few days uh, that you can operate. And that's what they're dealing with uh, just a few miles from here in Gaza across that border. Aaron, thank you so much. Stay with us. We'll get back to you very, very soon. We know that at least 1,300 people have been killed inside of Gaza, more than 6,000 injured. That comes to us from the Palestinian Health Ministry. Israel continues this blockade, as Aaron was speaking about, of food, fuel, water supplies into Gaza. Health officials there warning the hospital system is on the brink of collapse. Ben Wiedemann joins us from Beirut, Lebanon. Ben, you are in Lebanon, but you have reported extensively in Gaza throughout the years. Talk to us about what that would be like, is like on the ground then in Gaza with this continuing blockade. Well, the situation was grim even before this war began, but certainly what we've seen is a dramatic, catastrophic deterioration of living conditions in Gaza. Yesterday at 2 p.m. local time, the only power plant in Gaza shut down because of lack of fuel. Now, hospitals and other places have backup generators and storage facilities for that fuel, but they say they are quickly running out. We've heard from the Palestinian Ministry of Health 
that uh, these hospitals are at total capacity, that the beds are all full, uh, the injured are basically lying on the ground in the hallways. The system is essentially collapsing. Now, the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross has put out a statement, which I, you've referred to as well as Aaron, but I want to read this critical paragraph. It says, as Gaza loses power, hospitals lose power, putting newborns in incubators and elderly patients on oxygen at risk. Kidney dialysis stops and x-rays can't be taken. Without electricity, hospitals risk turning into morgues. Now, the Israelis have announced that they've imposed this siege, total siege, no electricity, no food, no fuel. The water seems to have been cut as well. But let's keep in mind, there are two million people in Gaza. Many of them, probably more than 50%, are not supporters of Hamas. They're really just trying to survive. 40% of the population is under the age of 15. The population density of Gaza is around 21,000 people per square mile. That's about six times the population density of Washington, D.C. So as you have this totality of factors, no food, no water, no electricity, no fuel, the hospitals collapsing under bombardment 24 hours a day. We understand that today is perhaps the most intense bombardment by Israel on the Gaza Strip so far. The situation is unbearable for the people of Gaza, and they're appealing for help. The Palestinian Ministry of Health is asking for international help to come in and set up hospitals, field hospitals, operating theaters, because at the moment nothing's getting in. And not even journalists, in fact. Uh, in the past, we've been able sometimes to cover these events, but in this instance, the Israelis aren't letting anybody in. The Egyptians have sealed the border uh, for journalists as well. There are very capable journalists in there at the moment, but the rest of us are stuck on the outside. But from afar, we are seeing just how difficult that situation is and just deteriorating dramatically by the minute. Poppy? Ben Wiedemann, thank you very much, especially given all your expertise reporting inside of Gaza. We'll get back to you soon. Well, you're looking live right now at pictures from the Gaza-Israel border, where we are seeing a lot of tanks and military vehicles, the continued massing of forces near that border. We want to bring in CNN military analyst and former member of the Joint Staff of the Pentagon, Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, Colonel Layton, as we have seen, and Aaron was doing amazing reporting throughout the course of the morning yesterday, as we kept seeing uh, large components of military capabilities flow into that area, how long can they stay there? What's the length of time that they would mass before uh, an incursion could actually begin? Yeah, I really feel good morning. That depends on a lot of different factors. But one of the key things is how long are they going to actually have food and fuel just to kind of stay there? And idle troops are not happy troops. And the key thing here is these guys are going to be sitting here probably for about 72 uh, to 96 hours or so uh, and at, at the most. And then after that, uh, they are going to basically spring into uh, areas in pre-position 
conditions all around this border area right here. Uh, this zone is basically the zone in which they are going to be operating in, and all the points at which the tanks and APCs and infantry fighting vehicles are located, uh, this is basically the jumping-off point for anything that they might be doing in Gaza in terms of actually uh, conducting operations in that way and making things uh, work for the Israeli forces in this area. All right, Colonel Cedric Layden, stay with us. We'll be coming back to you throughout the course of the hour. Thank you. We are waiting to hear from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He has landed in Israel. We know he's meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu. We'll bring you his remarks as soon as they come. And that will come as the White House is faced with a very real dilemma. How to respond to the atrocities in Israel without escalating the conflict. We have new CNN reporting. That's ahead. We're surging additional military assistance to the Israeli Defense Force, including ammunition, interceptors to replenish the Iron Dome. And we've moved the U.S. carrier fleet to the eastern Mediterranean and we're sending more fighter jets there in that region and made it clear made it clear to the Iranians, be careful. That was President Biden on Wednesday relaying a series of developments in America's response to the war between Israel and Hamas. The president has been focused on getting the response and tone just right and the dire consequences of making a misstep. But as the war intensifies, he faces a dilemma, how to encourage Israel's counterattacks, support it, in every way without sparking a wider war. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live for us at the White House. It's such a fine line to walk here, Priscilla. What's happening behind the scenes in the West Wing? And Phil, this really boils down to outrage without escalation. To give you a little bit of an inside look, the president gathered his advisors earlier this week before his speech on Israel. And in that uh, meeting, he told his advisors that he wanted to include more detail about the appalling nature of the attack. And if you recall, during his remarks, he forcefully talked about the, quote, sheer evil. And that deep emotional reaction by the president is what has translate, translated into a forceful response by the U.S. And that includes, uh, for example, ordering U.S. warships to the region, uh, sharing intelligence, as well as really little attempt at um, encouraging any restraint by Israel. But this is a very delicate balance, and that is really the message that has come through in closed-door meetings. That's what we've learned from officials. And the president has made quite clear that any they have to be very careful with any missteps, and that is really the fine line that they are towing here. And, and we see parts of that, for example, in his uh, meetings or his talk calls with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, he also talks about, for example, the importance of the rules of war. And U.S. officials have been very wary of making any direct links with Iran, which has supported Hamas because of any concerns of escalation. Now, of course, Phil, as you know, the president has a deep experience in foreign policy and they're leaning on that. But it is very clear here that they need to strike a very delicate balance when it comes to expressing the outrage over what we are seeing in Israel as well, but also trying to avoid any type of escalation of this moving forward. But amid all of that, Priscilla, the president has also not completely ruled out the possibility of sending U.S. troops to Israel. Is there any clarity from the administration on what it would take for that to happen? For now, U.S. officials say that we're not there at this point. Now, a person close to the White House said that if Hezbollah were to launch missiles into Israel, for example, that could escalate the situation. 
Yesterday, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said at this point they're not seeing any sort of rogue actors skirt the warnings from the U.S., but all of this is unfolding very quickly. And so for now, the situation remains that there will be no troops uh, sent there, but they, all U.S. officials are keenly aware of how quickly things can change, but actions as of now remain very much focused on deterrence mm -hmm. and really show a force by the U.S. the region. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, live for us at the White House. Thank you. And in just moments, we do expect to hear from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. He is in Israel. We'll bring that to you live. And Blinken said that the negotiations to create a humanitarian corridor for civilians to leave Gaza, they are ongoing. We'll break down why those negotiations are so complicated. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. Israel saying this morning they are not going to let up on this total blockade on Gaza until the hostages are all freed. President Biden speaking about the release of hostages in an impassioned speech on Wednesday. Listen. We want to make it real clear. We're working on every aspect of the hostage crisis in Israel. There's a lot we're doing. A lot we're doing. I have not given up hope on bringing these folks home. Get back to Aaron Brunetti is outside of a hospital in Ashkelon, Israel. Aaron, I know last night on your program, you spoke with the IDF. And what was interesting is they said something that I haven't heard them say before, which is where they believe these hostages may be held. That's right, Poppy. They did give a little bit more information about that, and they were pretty specific. I mean, we talk so much about all the tunnels under Gaza uh, and how they may have been involved in the attack itself, the terror attack on Israel. Uh, but he is saying that he believes that Hamas is holding these hostages in various locations scattered around Gaza in tunnels underground, and specifically that they think that these are locations that have not have been known to have been used before by Hamas, which, of course, uh, is a significant way of putting it, right? Not saying that Israel doesn't know uh, where those locations uh, may be, uh, but that they don't know that Hamas has used these before. So that is what they're giving. And it is new information, much more detailed than we had gotten from them to this point. Uh, one person is trying to help rescue these hostages. And I should note, by the way, on these final checkpoints before the Gaza border, we saw a lot of uh, what appeared to be consular officials from various countries uh, yesterday going by 
I'm not going to say they were going for any sort of negotiations, but it is possible that that was related because there were a lot of different uh, countries' consular uh, delegations going down by that checkpoint. Brian Stern is among those trying to help rescue these hostages. He works with Project Dynamo. It's a veteran-led uh, organization that has rescued Americans around the world. I know, Brian, you're working on projects in Afghanistan obviously here in Gaza, uh, as well as in Ukraine, where you and I first met. And you're in Israel right now as well. So when you hear, Brian, what the IDF is telling me that uh, where these hostages may be held, are you getting any more information? And does that fit with what you understand to be the case? Yeah, the, the, um, I think uh, what, what you're getting from the Israelis, I think, is accurate, and there's a lot more information uh, that's coming out every single day, and that's that's normal for these kinds of situations. The, you know, these 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 terrible situations have a have a have an arc, if you will. They they and and every single day we'll get more and more and more, and uh, the the captors, the hostage takers. Uh, the hostage takers will, will will learn more and more about them, which we're doing, which uh, which everyone's doing, and what they want, what they need, and what the leverage points are, and, and uh, different opportunities and windows to to, um, to to recover or rescue or get them released, which is by far the most amicable for everybody. The hostage takers don't want to be dead, and uh, you know um, you know they, they they know what they have, so it's it's in everyone's interest. Yes. theirs and the hostages, particularly the families, to get them released amicably. So, Brian, I was talking to, to a father who his wife um, and both of his daughters, who are ages five and three, he was literally on the phone with her in the safe room when uh, Hamas militants came in and she was taken hostage. He hasn't heard since. He doesn't know the situation. But you are dealing, uh, when you talk about 150 hostages, with very young children. Do you know anything about the conditions they're being held in, where any of these people are being held, and how the reality of such small children being among the hostages is affecting the situation. Obviously, obviously, when children are involved, uh, that is, uh, you know, twice, twice the war crime, if you will, right? Hostages are bad. Hostages are bad, but yeah. children bring a different dynamic to it. Uh, I can't. I, I don't have children. Uh, and I can't even begin to fathom what that father's going through. Um, the kid, you know, the, the conditions, the, uh, the conditions are, are terrible. There's no, you know, the, 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 the hostages are not in jail cells where they're given three hots and a cot and can watch TV and do their time. They're being held under extremely bad conditions. 100% there's sexual assault, 100% there's brutal assault, 100% there's torture, 100% uh, there's uh, things that we can't even think about. So um, uh, it's truly terrible. And the answer again, the answer again is uh, Hamas and their associates need to need to come up with a resolution because the hostages are only good if they're points of leverage and they, they serve a utility. If they outlive their usefulness for the right. for the bad guys, then they'll be executed. If they outlive their value for, uh, uh, from a geopolitical perspective, that's also a problem. Yes. Brian, I know that you're working with some specific families. You're working with Americans. Um, and I, I, do, you, do you know anything about the condition of the hostages that, that you're specifically trying to negotiate release for? You know, what, the, what their health condition are, what their condition is when they were taken. And, and, I, and I say on top of that, at this point, have you figured out who to talk to to try to negotiate any sort of release? 
uh, I can't get into any kind of specifics as far as what we're doing or how we're doing it. We're also rescuing Americans that are trapped here uh, that can't get out because of the flights are canceled and all those things. And we're also working on getting people out of the Palestinian ter territories who are who are hiding, essentially. So we have three different things that Project Dynamo is doing at once. As you know, we're donor funded. Uh, ProjectDynamo.org, shameless plug. We need financial help. The conditions that um, that people were taken in are terrible. This, these, we need to re we need to remember that Hamas and their associates are terrorists. These are not professional soldiers who understand the law of armed conflict. These are not police officers that understand how to read Miranda rights. Every one of these situations was brutal, every single one, and the level of brutality is the question. So far from what we understand, pretty much every single person that's been taken was injured to some extent or another, some, some pretty severely. Uh, and some bumps and bruises, but at the end of the day, nobody was treated with dignity. No one's being treated with dignity. There is no respect. Hamas is a terrorist organization, and we need to remember to treat them as such. And that means respect them as a terrorist organization. And they have they have sensitive areas uh, and their own red lines that will push them over the edge, which needs to um, be taken into consideration. They're not a, 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 a real government. They're they're an organization if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Brian, I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. And Poppy and Phil, I think it is worth, um, you know, relating such that we understand in some specific cases, some people were horrifically injured when they were taken hostage. So we just don't know. We don't know how many of them are alive. We don't know what condition they're in. And when you layer that in with what we do know to be a dire humanitarian situation in Gaza, with power and water and fuel and people possibly being held in dark tunnels with no light, one can only imagine the horrors that they're being subjected to. And if you're injured, uh, that every single moment, even now, is of the essence yeah. to get people back, if that's going to happen, alive. I mean, you're so right. The young man, 23-year-old Hirsch Goldberg Poland, who was taken, uh, we spoke to his parents this week, Aaron, his arm uh, was in a tourniquet uh, when he was taken, according to eyewitnesses. So the dire health, even when they're <laughs> taken. Uh, thank you, Aaron. We'll get back to you very soon. Also this morning, there are new questions about the IDF's response time to the Hamas initial attacks over the weekend. More than 120 bodies were found uh, near the Israeli kibbutz of Be'eri, a self-sustaining farm community right near Gaza. Survivors have told CNN that it took the IDF at least 12 hours to get to that area, despite an army base being just minutes away. Eight-year-old Emily Hand was among those killed. Look at her there. She was at a sleepover at a friend's house Friday night before the ambush, and this is what her father told CNN. I'm waiting. I'm thinking the army are going to be here soon. You know, just hold on a bit longer. And longer. And longer. In the same kibbutz, Lotan and Michael Pinion and their three children fled to their shelter, barricading the door with a baseball bat. Lotan saying, quote, we were waiting for about 20 hours with no food, no water, no toilet before the IDF arrived to rescue them. Let's bring in Israeli Special Operations veteran and law enforcement trainer Aaron Cohen. Uh, we appreciate your time. There's a lot we want to get to. But, but to start with, um, friends that I've spoken to in Israel, the shattered nature of their view of their military, of their response, of their intelligence services right now, how does that affect what is expected to come in the days ahead? Uh, it's not going to affect it. 
the reason why is because uh, emotions are high, but Israel doesn't have the time to to be affected by those emotions. Uh, the country comes together collectively. This is what we do. We've been doing this since 1948. We did it in 56 during the Mitla jump. We did it in 1973 when Golda and her Mossad failed to provide accurate intelligence for that Yom Kippur, uh, Kippur war. It happened in 67. Happened again in the first Lebanon war. Israel's been in war historically every 10 years. What's happening right now with the military is... The first focus is these hostages. There's probably over 150 hostages, old women, uh, uh, kids who've been dragged into those tunnels, dragged over the fence. Israel has some incredible special operations assets. I discussed this with you guys before. They've got the general staff reconnaissance unit, which is Bibi Netanyahu's old unit. Uh, the Israeli National Police have the Yamam, the Yechidah Meuchedet Mishtartit, which is one of the top three counter-terror units in the world. These units, as we speak right now, have assets inside of Gaza that people don't know about that are looking and listening. It's probably over a thousand people with our intelligence agencies listening to phone calls. Is it a fair question to ask, though, that intelligence failure, those people would have been in Gaza prior to the attack over the weekend. Is it fair, a fair question to ask whether that intelligence failure on the, on the initial attack would have been corrected enough at this point to give them much more confidence about finding these yes. hostages? Yes. Uh, uh, the southern portion of Israel is now sterile. It's contained. However, there were several hostage rescue missions that were conducted in and around Kibbutz Be'eri, as well as another town about 20, uh, 20 kilometers east of Gaza. Uh, Israel was caught off guard. It's happened to Israel before. Uh, heads will roll when the time is right, but we're not going to look inwards now. We're just going to focus on what needs to be done and start that collective coming together. So what about what Aaron just reported? Because that was the most detail we've heard from anyone in the IDF to her last night about the fact that they believe some of these hostages, if not all, are underground, but in locations that they had not known Hamas to use prior. So that would be different than some of the tunnels found Yeah, and that's uh, the most before. That's the most difficult part of it. How do you get them, then? That's the most difficult part of it. So that's what I, I'm going to take it back to what the intelligence services are doing right now. They're listening to phone calls. We're gathering information. We need intelligence. We need to know where they are, what structures they're in, what type of structures they are, how many people are in those structures, how many terrorists are in those structures, what, how many rooms are in those structures. If we have time to build a mock structure so that our Sayeret Matkal, our Israeli tier one asset, and that uh, hostage rescue uh, national police unit can rehearse quietly behind the scenes so that we know exactly where the left foot is going to land the moment you're making forced entry into a room. Those shots have to go fast. They have to go straight, but we need to know and get the information. That's the first piece. Simultaneously, we're going to prepare the Givati Brigade, which is our Marine Corps, uh, in conjunction with those 300,000 troops uh, that have been called up from the reservists to prepare for this counteroffensive. There may be a smokescreen that the hostage rescue teams use. They might jump into that confusion and use that uh, panic and chaos and all of that violence of action as a, uh, as a smokescreen to be able to initiate those assaults. You've got the Israeli SEALs right now. They're working reconnaissance off the coastline of Gaza. They're coming within feet of that coastline in order to be able to report anything that they see. So right now, multiple pieces. Here's what we're trying to do. We're going to create what's called a sir lachatz in Hebrew, a pressure cooker. That means we're going to go into Gaza from every different direction and create as much confusion as possible so we can get those 150 hostages back. Again, like I told you guys before, Israel made a mistake and there's an intelligence failure. Heads are going to get chopped off when this thing is over, but we don't have time for that. 
what we need to do right now, come together collectively as a people. Everybody's a combat veteran in Israel. Everybody's getting ready and we're getting focused. And you're about to see what Israel does best, which is selective operations using creativity, poise, and audacity. Can I ask you, and we just saw it, it's, it's on the screen right now, we have been seeing what appears to be artillery fire from some of the massed forces. Um, you talk about the selective operations. There's also going to be, as you noted, you know, our analog to the Marines, will be going in in a, a pretty major blunt force uh, type of way. When you're seeing artillery fire, we've been talking about the airstrikes uh, and the sheer number of them and power of them. What's the artillery for right now? Uh, the artillery is, is another layer in conjunction with, by the way, those airstrikes, those are being lased by Israeli commandos on the ground so that we can follow international law and we don't take out innocent civilian buildings that are 10 feet away from a, a, a Hamas building. So there's commandos lazing those buildings to make sure we're using the highest degree of selectivity because we don't want innocent, uh, innocent casualties. But as far as the artillery goes, uh, softening, softening, preparing the ground in Hebrew, we want to be able to open up pathways, multiple pathways. Again, 360-degree guys, Sirlachas, pressure cooker, so that when those troops, when that Kivati Brigade, by the way, very seasoned and starched infantry brigade, when they do go in, we need paths, we need open holes. We don't want booby traps. We don't want surprises. I don't want Hamas hanging around this corner when I'm coming in here with my platoon. So we're just trying to soften and level and prepare that battlefield so that when the signal is given, we have the highest potential advantage possible to avoid, uh, to avoid getting killed. It's going to be very dangerous. It's going to be bloody. Yeah. It's going to be extremely chaotic. Uh, it, it, it's it's, it's going to be really, really uh, hectic. And it's going to... Israel doesn't have time. Uh, you know, we're on the clock. For every second we waste, those hostages get moved around again. You know, like I was explaining to you guys. And it's like a cold case murder. You know, the longer you wait to solve the murder, the farther away uh, uh, the, the case gets, and then the case gets dropped. Well, Aaron, stay with us. Your expertise on this is so valuable. Appreciate you. We'll get Appreciate back to you, you very soon. And we'll continue to cover the latest developments out of Israel and Gaza. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., Congressman Steve Scalise has won the GOP nomination for House Speaker, and yet he's not House Speaker yet. His chances of actually winning the gavel? Pretty slim at this point. We'll tell you why. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We continue to monitor what is happening in Israel and in Gaza. We will continue with our team coverage. But we do want to turn to the speaker's race in Washington. Pretty powerful position, one in which there isn't a actual official speaker at this point. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise did technically win the Republican internal vote to be the nominee for speaker. But the Louisiana congressman who was nominated on a secret ballot still has several Republicans fearing that he may not have the support to get to the magic number of 217 votes. By CNN's count, at least 10 Republicans have said they will vote no on Scalise. There's a few more also undecided. CNN's Lauren Fox is live in Washington, D.C. with the latest. Uh, Lauren, the House left without a set time or day to vote. Uh, It was a heck of an effort by Scalise and his team to win the internal competition. Can they actually get it over the finish line on the House floor? Yeah, there's a lot of concern right now among many House Republicans that they may not be able to get it over the finish line. And, you know, there's a reason that a vote isn't scheduled. When you don't have the votes, a lot of people don't want to go to the floor, especially after watching Kevin McCarthy grind it out over 15 rounds back in January. Right now, there are a number of House Republicans who are making it clear that they will never vote for Steve Scalise. Here's a few of them. 
I'm not supporting Steve Scalise. I'll be voting for Jim Jordan. But the leader that I want to stand behind is Jim Jordan. And right now, my mind hasn't changed. I think the leader is a really great man. And uh, I've committed publicly to voting for Jim Jordan on the floor. I plan on voting for Jim Jordan on the floor. I personally cannot, in good conscience, vote for someone who attended a white supremacist conference and compared himself to David Duke. And the question now, of course, is can things change behind the scenes? Is there anything that Steve Scalise can say privately to some of these holdouts to try and convince them? But this is, again, the difficulty of having such a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. Whoever gets this job, and it's very unclear right now who that person will be, they can only afford to lose a handful of votes on the House floor. Now, you really have a question of strategy here. Do you want to continue to try to win this support behind closed doors? Or, as some members have suggested to me, does Steve Scalise stand a better chance if he goes to the floor and tries to pressure members to publicly say how they are going to vote, to try and move members that way? Obviously, there is a crisis looming in the Middle East, and there are huge questions about what the role of the House of Representatives should be at this moment. If they don't have a speaker, they can do nothing on the floor. And there was a feeling that after the weekend's events, maybe there would be more impetus on House Republicans to unify. But up to this point, we just haven't seen that. Uh, it's fascinating to listen to Nancy Mace, who didn't seem to turn away Steve Scalise's endorsement uh, and her race. Quite a shift in position there, if memory serves. Lauren Fox, another wild day on Capitol Hill. Thank you. So the writer's strike is over. The actor's strike looks like it's going to go on potentially for a while. Their union and the Hollywood studio suspended contract talks last night. It's looking like this nearly three-month strike is not about to end. The studios say that the union's latest demands would cost an additional $800 million a year and could create what the studios are calling an untenable burden. Actors are accusing the studios of, quote, bullying tactics. Also this morning, in a surprising move, the United Auto Workers Union expanded its strike last night to Ford's most profitable factory. 8,700 workers walked off the job at the company's Kentucky truck plant. After a brief negotiating session between Ford officials and union leaders ended abruptly, the UAW has been on strike against Ford, General Motors and Stellantis for nearly a month. I do want to go straight to Nick Robertson. He joins us now live on the ground. Nick, can you hear us? I believe you're in Syrot. Is that right? Yeah, we're a little bit outside uh, steroid. And what you're seeing behind me there is a field with a dozen, upwards of a dozen, heavy howitzer artillery guns. You may hear some of them go off behind me. They've been firing uh, a very heavy salvo of artillery shells. There they go. Uh, in towards Gaza. This is something that we've been hearing happening overnight last night, and we heard it part of the way through yesterday. But this is quite a significant barrage of artillery that's being laid down uh, going into Gaza right now. We're going to, John's going to try to give you a better image of some of those big guns in the field. But I'm, I'm looking at them here, counting one, two, three, four, five, six, there and further up the field, seven, eight, nine, ten, dug in the bunkers here as well. You know, upwards, uh, I would say, easily of a dozen that are, that are dug in the field here uh, with their ammunition supplies, with their support troops, with their infantry troops behind them in their armored personnel carriers. So this is a significant uh, number of forces that have been positioned here. And 
We were in this field back in 2021 when Hamas had launched airstrikes. Israel responded with uh, Hamas had launched rockets and Israel had responded. The defense forces had responded with gunfire like this and and of course uh, fire from jets. The number of howitzers uh, in this gun emplacement here is much higher than what we witnessed two years ago during that particular confrontation. Uh, Nick, Just pausing. Yeah. So you can see and hear we're the We're watching guns. it. Yes. Yeah, we're watching it. We're watching it play out live. Nick, can I ask? We've been talking about the airstrikes and the scale of the airstrikes. Those artillery pieces look like they're in freshly dug uh, baselines at this point. Are those new? Were those all brought in over the course of the last 24 hours? Uh, I would say probably brought in over the last 36 to 48 hours. These are all freshly dug, uh, freshly dug in here to this field. We knew to look at this field because it had been used in, in previous uh, conflicts here. Uh, again, this is a, a much more significant number. And we saw some of these heavy artillery pieces on the road coming in this direction a couple of days ago. Uh, so what you're seeing in the field here, this is all new. A couple of days ago, this wasn't here. This is part of the massive deployment of the 300,000 reservists plus others that are being, those that are being sent here to the outskirts of Gaza. I would say from where we're located here, we're probably two to three miles or so away from, from Gaza. Um, the, the, these barrages that we're seeing here now, we've heard these going on through the night last night, through late yesterday afternoon as well. Nick, thank you. Stay close if you can. And let's bring in Colonel Cedric Blayton again to talk to us about his analysis, Colonel, of what this tells you as we I think we can keep those live images up as you help explain to people what's happening. Yeah, absolutely, Poppy. So what you're seeing here, so Nick is right here in Sterot. Uh, this is really close to the border between of uh, Israel and Gaza right here. Uh, so what they're doing is they're firing into this particular area of Gaza, and they're moving forward, uh, doing it probably from multiple locations. And when you combine that with uh, the strikes that Israel has been doing in this area, already. Notice that there's a concentration right along here in Gaza City. This is where uh, Sterot is right here, right, this area right here. All of this is coming in this way, this way, and then probably from this area. You look at airstrikes, you look at artillery strikes, they are softening up this area, and it looks like this might be the area in which the Israelis may be looking to do something. Mm. If they're doing it here, or they could be doing it here, but that's a very densely populated area. The other thing that they could be doing is this could be a diversionary area, and they might be doing something else in the southern regions. We have to wait to see. All right, Colonel Aiden, stay with us. Nick, I, I want to go back to you if you're still with us. No, we're, no, watching, no, no, no. We're, we're watching this play out uh, live on screen, and I think the tempo of it. Uh, continues to increase. You were talking about how you've covered this type of situation in that very field in 2021. Uh, is this dramatically different in terms of the scale? It is. It's dramatically different in terms of the number of howitzers that we're seeing in, in the gun positions here. Uh, and the spread in the fields is just spread out in a bigger area. And the the length of the salvos that are firing here, more guns 
firing more often for a longer period of time. And this is uh, far, in, in, in far, far bigger than what we witnessed in, in 2021. So I, w without a doubt, uh, bigger deployment, more firepower uh, and, and, a, and a more, if you will, forward-leaning posture, I think, than we, than we saw previously. The, the units that are accompanying this artillery position in the field here, infantry units, uh, we didn't see infantry in those numbers before in, in, in 2021 either. Nick, the road behind you appears open for, for everyone. Um, it, it, all the roads in this area are controlled. This is okay. a sort of a, a military zone here. Journalists do have a level of access, but most civilians from this area have been either bussed out or requested uh, to leave. That's certainly the message that they're getting through local media here. The mayors are telling them through local media that they should stay away for about the next 10 days. I mean, in Starot, where, where we've been, uh, there are very, very few civilians left there. The, the, the roads are the roads are empty there, they're, they're, the stores are closed. So this highway would normally be much busier. And I think sure. a lot of this traffic here has to do with a military operation as well. Nick, thank you so much. We'll stay close as well. Yeah, I, I do want to turn back briefly, at least to, to Colonel Cedric Layton. The use of these artillery pieces, what does that tell you about what uh, the Israeli forces are trying to do right now? So, Phil, what they're trying to do is they're trying to soften up the target, but they want to create as an environment in which they can move troops into these areas right here. That's at least a potential. Now, the other thing that they may be doing is complementary to the power outages and the fuel shortages that we've been talking about this morning. Uh, they are using this to cut the, the Gaza off even further. And when you do that, you see all the military traffic coming in here. Uh, you've got the possibility also of potentially moving forces in uh, to perhaps surround a particular unit of Hamas. That is one possibility that could be happening. And we also have to keep in mind that airstrikes are occurring in this area as well. So between airstrikes and artillery, we're softening up the targets so that it can actually move, uh, they can actually move Israeli forces into position even further, perhaps inside uh, Gaza itself. Okay, Colonel Layton, thank you so much. We really appreciate the analysis, really side by side with what Nick is reporting live on the ground there right around Surat. We're going to keep a very close eye on that as it continues. Also, we are waiting to hear live from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. See the lecterns there. He will be there any moment. We'll bring you that update as it happens. He did say negotiations for a humanitarian corridor to get those civilians out of Gaza are, quote, ongoing. We'll talk about why those discussions are so difficult to head. This is CNN Breaking News. Good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. Aaron Burnett is live near the Gaza border. It is 7 a.m. on the East Coast, 2 p.m. in Tel Aviv, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to speak at any moment as the war between Israel and Hamas escalates. He's meeting right now with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as Israel continues to pummel Gaza with artillery and airstrikes. And the humanitarian crisis there is growing more dire by the hour. Hostages, including Americans, are still being held captive. This morning, Israel has issued a new ultimatum. Power and water, fuel will all stay cut off to Gaza until Hamas returns the hostages abducted in that surprise attack. 
And the International Committee of the Red Cross says without power, fuel and water, those hospitals will turn into morgues with cancer patients, babies in incubators, and the elderly seriously at risk. We have team coverage across the region and here at home, but let's get straight to Aaron Burnett, live at the hospital in Ashkelon, Israel. It got hit in yesterday's strike, also treated more than 600 patients from Saturday's attacks by Hamas. Aaron, at this point, what are you seeing at the hospital? All right, so this has been a hospital that's been very busy uh, since the beginning, Phil and Poppy, of the attacks on Saturday. You mentioned 650 people uh, came here to this hospital in Ashkelon. Uh, we are very near the Gaza border, uh, obviously just about seven, eight miles from the Gaza border here. Uh, 650 of them originally, uh, we still know at least 30 of them are still here being treated. And then there's the ongoing strikes. Yesterday, when we came on, under that, that heavy assault of, of dozens and dozens, 60, 70 rockets uh, above us, above Ashkelon, some of those inevitably do come through the, the dome, either a full rocket or pieces of a rocket. And we've seen places where they have impacted. A rocket did hit this hospital here yesterday, part of it. But in addition, about 70 people who were injured yesterday in those strikes from Hamas here in Ashkelon came here to this hospital. And we understand some of them are still here being treated uh, for that for that trauma. So this is very much in the center of this. It's both a target and a place that people come uh, for relief and for treatment after these strikes in terms of what Israel is dealing with right now. Also, I will say, Poppy and Phil, over the past hour and a half as we've been here, a lot of thuds coming from Gaza. Over the past half hour, we've heard less of that. Uh, but a lot of thuds coming from Gaza, as I said, just a few miles away, where we know that the IDF has been conducting uh, major airstrikes, they say, on terror targets uh, throughout Gaza throughout this morning. And as I said, when we came here, they, those were steady, sort of, I'd say, every minute, every 30 seconds, we would hear those very loud thuds. Uh, and we haven't heard that here in about the past half hour, although uh, I do know that just south of here, and there we just heard one right now, actually. So, uh, but just south of here, there have been a lot of incoming uh, rockets over Sturot, where I, I know we're going to be talking to Nick Robertson in just a few moments. Um, and, and Nick, I know you have been seeing a lot of that rocket onslaught so far this morning, uh, dozens and dozens of them, I understand. What have you actually experienced there? Yeah, early this morning there was a salvo of rockets coming in from uh, coming in from Gaza. The Iron Dome defenses shield intercepted them. However, there were there one property was hit. We understand that there were some civilian casualties at that property. Um, but where we're at, located right now, just outside of Starod, about three miles, I would say, two to three miles from the border, from this location to Gaza. And what you're looking at here is Israeli defense force heavy howitzers firing artillery shells into Gaza at Hamas targets in Gaza. Um, this is a very big concentration of, of uh, Israeli firepower here. We covered the uh, situation with Gaza in 2021, where there was exchange of artillery fire rockets by, uh, out by Hamas. This is on a scale just waiting for that explosion there. This is on a scale much bigger. We're seeing more guns dug in here, more support troops around the guns. We're seeing a longer, more intense barrage of outgoing shell fire towards Gaza. While we've been here for the last, I would say, 20, 30 minutes, this has been sustained outgoing fire from multiple, multiple guns. And in, in 2021, to give you comparison, um, the salvos just didn't last that long. They were a few minutes. 
They were over, they paused, they waited for, for fresh target instructions. So this, to, from my experience here, uh, and the guns were dug in the same positions here back in 2021, um, this is a much more sustained uh, artillery targeting of Hamas positions in Gaza. Uh, we've been hearing the impacts in Gaza from these guns through the night. We've heard the outgoing fire through the night. We've heard the impacts coming from Gaza through the night. We're also hearing them late yesterday afternoon as well, Aaron. All right, so, so Nick, again, this question, and we can hear, obviously, uh, that, that volley of fire uh, where you're standing right now, just a few miles from that border. Uh, um, how would you characterize, and over the past couple of days here, Nick, as we've been along this border, we've all seen an increase in both the presence, the readiness, the perception of readiness, and what you're hearing right now, the tempo of the back and forth. What do you feel is happening today? Is it even accelerating even more today as we try to understand when the actual assault itself could begin? I don't think we have a good assessment yet of when the assault itself, if there's a decision to, to have one, which seems likely, but I don't think we have a good assessment yet of how imminent that assault might be. I mean, the guns that we're looking at here that you can see on your screens now are heavy howitzers. Uh, we saw that we saw them coming in on flatbed trucks just a couple of days ago. We saw them at this location digging in late yesterday. Um, now we're seeing them today dug in, in action, firing long sustained uh, salvos of this, of this targeted artillery fire at, at Hamas positions. And you can see the flashes from the guns here. You can see the dust rising up from where they're dug in in the field. You can hear the boom of, of the outgoing shell. What we can't hear from here is the, the, the impacts in Gaza itself. But uh, I think when we try to judge how close uh, 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 any ground invasion incursion might be, my sense is there's definitely there are far more troops in position, but, we're, but it's still a build potentially towards that. I don't think the forces are in place for that, but definitely postured and ready, readying for when it might happen. Yes. All right, Nick Robertson, thank you very much. And Poppy and Phil, obviously we can hear uh, you hear the, the fire behind uh, Nick. You also hear from where we are thuds in Gaza. Uh, as those airstrikes from Israel continue, uh, it is just a way to remember that all of these uh, locations are just miles from each other, right? That you're talking about a very small distance uh, that, that when we're talking about this fire and you're talking about what we're hearing. And it is just something to keep in mind, right? That you are talking about extremely small distances. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Joining us now, IDF spokesman Major Daron Spielman. He joins us. Uh, sir, I appreciate your time this morning. I want to start, given what our reporters are seeing on the ground, Nick Robertson, Aaron Burnett, uh, now artillery to go along with the airstrikes and the tempo seeming to tick upward. I want to ask you about something one of your colleagues said earlier this week and asked about the scale of what the response would be to the terror attacks. He said it would be bigger than before and more severe. Should I read into that that it will be more significant in terms of a ground operation than we saw in 2009 or than we saw in 2014? Absolutely. Uh, in the same way that Hamas's attack against us was really unprecedented in terms of really the level of the massacre, the brutality, the numbers of Israelis, men, women, and children that were destroyed 
entire in the most grotesque way, it became clear Hamas cannot exist in their current capacity because they really will do everything to destroy the state. As we said, we declared a time shift. This is not an operation. This is not going in and hitting a few strategic targets. This is causing a change in terms of Hamas in Gaza and destroying their ability to do this to us ever again. So what you're looking at is something totally different than what we've seen before. Major Spielman, obviously there is great concern about the hostages, Israeli Americans and others still being held as what you're describing, you know, is, is, is potentially about to begin. Has Israel's intelligence within Gaza improved since over the weekend in terms of your confidence that you can execute this, whatever is to come, while protecting them and hopefully getting them out? I'll tell you, you're you're hitting upon a good nerve, uh, a correct nerve, because I have to explain the Israeli forces that are in the south. Myself, these hostages are not just family. We're such a small country that we actually know these hostages. They are members of people's families. If it's not your own, very. Major Spielman, please stand by. I apologize for interrupting. Let's listen to the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Mr. Secretary, my good friend Tony, thank you for your important visit here today. Thank you. Thank President Biden. And thank you to the American people for your incredible support for Israel in our war against the barbarians of Hamas. I thank you in English. I want to thank you in Hebrew as well. I want to thank the President of Blinken, the President Biden and the American people for their support במלחמה שלנו נגד הברברים של החמאס. אדוני המזכיר, אתה בא הנה לעם כואב, עם לוחם, עם של אריות, עם שנחוש לנצח את כוחות הרשע מסביבנו. משעה לשעה מגיעות לנו, אנחנו שומעים, על סיפורי הזוועה ועל סיפורי הגבורה. סיפורי הזוועה אומרים הכל עליהם, וסיפורי הגבורה אומרים הכל עלינו. והגבורה הזאת תנצח. Mr. Secretary, your visit is another tangible example of America's unequivocal support for Israel. Hamas has shown itself to be an enemy of civilization. The massacring of young people in an outdoor music festival, the butchering of entire families, the murder of parents in front of their children and the murder of children in front of their parents, the burning of people alive, the beheadings, 
the kidnappings of a young boy, not only kidnapped, molested, hurt, attacked, and the sickening display of celebrating these horrors, the celebration and glorification of evil. President Biden was absolutely correct in calling this sheer evil. Hamas is ISIS, and just as ISIS was crushed, so too will Hamas be crushed. And Hamas should be treated exactly the way ISIS was treated. They should be spit out from the community of nations. No leader should meet them. No country should harbor them. And those that do should be sanctioned. Tony, my friend, I say to you, I say to all of us, there will be many difficult days ahead. But I have no doubt that the forces of civilization will win. And the reason that's true is because we understand what is the first prerequisite of victory. It's what you just said in our meeting. Moral clarity. This is a time, a particular time, a special time, that we must stand tall, proud, and united against evil. Tony, you are taking that stand. America is taking that stand. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, America, for standing with Israel today, tomorrow, and always. Mr. Prime Minister, um, I'm grateful to be back in Israel in this incredibly difficult moment for this nation, but in fact, for the entire world. If you'll permit me, um, personal aside, I come before you not only as the United States Secretary of State, but also as a Jew. My grandfather, Maurice Blinken, fled pogroms in Russia. My stepfather, Samuel Pizar, survived concentration camps, Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek. So, Prime Minister, I understand on a personal level the harrowing echoes that Hamas's massacres carry for Israeli Jews, indeed, for Jews everywhere. I also come before you as a husband and father of young children. It's impossible for me to look at the photos of families killed, such as the mother, father, and three small children murdered as they sheltered in their home in kibbutz near Oz, and not think of my own children. This was just one of Hamas's countless acts of terror. In a litany of brutality and inhumanity that, yes, brings to mind the worst of ISIS. Babies slaughtered, bodies desecrated, young people burned alive, women raped, parents executed in front of their children, 
children in front of their parents. How are we even to understand this, to digest this? And yet, at the same time, at the same time that we've been shocked by the depravity of Hamas, we've also been inspired by the bravery of Israel citizens. The grandfather who drove over an hour to a kibbutz under siege, armed only with a pistol, and rescued his kids and grandkids. The mother who died shielding her teenage son with her body, giving her life to save his, giving him life for a second time. The volunteer security teams on the kibbutzes who swiftly rallied to defend their friends and neighbors despite being heavily outnumbered. And we're lifted by the remarkable solidarity of the Israeli people, demonstrated in the long lines of people giving blood, in the hundreds of thousands of reservists who've mobilized, some rushing home from abroad, people around the country opening their homes to fellow citizens displaced from the South. The people of Israel have long and rightly prided themselves on their self-reliance, on their ability to defend themselves, even when the odds are stacked against them. The message that I bring to Israel is this. You may be strong enough on your own to defend yourself, but as long as America exists, you will never ever have to. We will always be there by your side. That's the message that President Biden delivered to the Prime Minister from the moment this crisis began. It's the message that I and my other colleagues in the government have delivered to our Israeli counterparts on a daily, even an hourly basis. It's the message that I bring with me to our discussions today, and it's what I'll affirm when I meet with the members of Israel's newly formed national emergency government. We welcome the government's creation and the unity and resolve that it reflects across Israel society. We're delivering on our word, supplying ammunition, interceptors, to replenish Israel's Iron Dome, alongside other defense materiel. First shipments of U.S. military support have already arrived in Israel, and more is on the way. As Israel's defense needs evolve, we will work with Congress to make sure that they're met. And I can tell you, there is overwhelming, overwhelming bipartisan support in our Congress for Israel's security. Here in Israel, and everywhere, we will reaffirm the crystal clear warning that President Biden issued yesterday to any adversary, state or non-state, thinking of taking advantage of the current crisis to attack Israel. Don't. The United States has Israel's back. We've deployed the world's largest aircraft carrier to the eastern Mediterranean. We bolstered the presence of U.S. fighter aircraft in the region. We're providing other support as well. We continue working closely with Israel to secure the release of the men, women, children, elderly people taken hostage by Hamas. We're pursuing intensive diplomacy throughout the region to prevent the conflict from spreading. And I'll be doing that over the course of my trip in the coming days. Too often in the past, leaders have equivocated in the face of terrorist attacks against Israel and its people. That's why we've been adamant with all countries in the wake of these attacks, there is no excuse. 
There is no justification for these atrocities. You heard the Prime Minister say it. This is, this must be, a moment for moral clarity. The failure to unambiguously condemn terrorism puts at risk not only people in Israel, but people everywhere. Look at what just happened. Individuals from 36 countries killed or missing in the aftermath of Hamas's attacks. Europe, Asia, Africa, the Americas, no region has escaped Hamas's bloody reach. Anyone who wants peace and justice must condemn Hamas's reign of terror. We know Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinian people or their legitimate aspirations to live with equal measures of security, freedom, justice, opportunity, and dignity. We know Hamas, instead of promoting the well-being of its citizens, rules repressively and dedicates the resources it has to terror tunnels and rockets. We know Hamas didn't commit its heinous acts with the interests of Palestinian people in mind. We know Hamas does not stand for the future that Palestinians want for themselves and for their children. Hamas has only one agenda, to destroy Israel and to murder Jews. No country can or would tolerate the slaughter of its citizens or simply return to the conditions that allowed it to take place. Israel has the right, indeed the obligation, to defend itself and to ensure that this never happens again. As the Prime Minister and I discussed, how Israel does this matters. We democracies distinguish ourselves from terrorists by striving for a different standard, even when it's difficult, and holding ourselves to account when we fall short. Our humanity, the value that we place on human life and human dignity, that's what makes us who we are. And we count them among our greatest strength. That's why it's so important to take every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. And that's why we mourn the loss of every innocent life. Civilians of every faith, every nationality, who've been killed. Tragically, the number of innocent lives claimed by Hamas's heinous attacks continues to rise. Among those, we now know that at least 25 American citizens were killed. We joined families in Israel, in the United States, around the world, in mourning their immeasurable loss. Nearly 15 years ago, my stepfather, who I alluded to earlier, Samuel Pizar, came here to Yad Vashem to perform the mourner's prayer that he wrote to accompany Leonard Bernstein's Third Symphony, Kaddish. Reflecting on the unspeakable horrors that he'd endured as a boy in the Nazi concentration camps, he wrote that man, though created in your image and endowed with the freedom to choose between good and evil, remains capable of the worst as of the best, of hatred as of love, of madness as of genius. In this moment, where evil, hatred, and madness have once more taken so many innocent lives, we must stand together, resolved to confront what is worst among humanity with what is best. We must provide an alternative 
to the vision of violence and fear, nihilism and terror presented by Hamas. That is what the United States will do, standing with Israel, working together with its people, and all those in this region who remain committed to the vision of a more peaceful, more integrated, more secure, a more prosperous Middle East. And there you have it, an unequivocal show of support from Secretary Blinken to Israel, no daylight between the two countries, reminding the world that the United States stands side by side with Israel in this moment and always, and hearing from the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, deep gratitude for the immense support of the United States, and also making clear that Hamas is ISIS and should be wiped out the same way as ISIS. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. An update also as we bring in our colleague Aaron Burnett. Aaron, we also just heard from Secretary Blinken an update that 25 Americans, 25 Americans were killed in these attacks. And 25 Americans killed. There were 17 still accounted for as of this morning, Poppy. So uh, that number could continue to rise. But it is a somber reality that the death toll of known deaths is still going up. Um, and, and interesting what you heard there. Obviously, no daylight between them. One thing I know we all heard there echoed, Phil and Poppy, uh, was when they described the actual attack itself. They both talked about young people being burned alive. They used those words. They talked about parents being executed in front of their children. And uh, children in front of their parents. And it was very clear that those words were, uh, they had agreed to that. That was very clear. And there was there was no daylight between them. I will say one thing, uh, Poppy, in that, in that vein, Secretary Blinken could not have been more clear. The United States has Israel's back than going through the, the aircraft carrier, the world's largest being deployed to the Eastern Mediterranean, increase in air force uh, supplies for the Iron Dome, any military need Israel needs. Uh, however, it was interesting, I thought that he said one thing, how Israel does this matter, matters, and striving for a different standard and that there is value in human life and dignity. Uh, it, was, it, it, it seemed to be as sort of as horrific as this is. The value of civilian life is so crucial. And then he went on to draw the distinction between Hamas as a, as a brutal and repressive terrorist organization and the actual needs and desires and ambitions of the Palestinian people. A distinction that he was very clear to draw, as you all saw, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu himself, uh, still reflecting uh, the shock and rage that so many here feel, you know, using the word evil and talking about spitting out uh, Hamas as the world spit out ISIS. You could feel uh, that rage coming off of him. But I think some important words from Blinken of, of caution about civilian life as well uh, in this speech, Phil and Poppy. Yeah, Aaron, it's a great point. There's no equivocation in terms of the support. It has been as robust as we've ever seen uh, from any administration, uh, this administration included. But I want to bring in Nick Robertson, uh, because when you talk about that balance that Aaron is mentioning, you heard it from President Biden, you heard it again from the Secretary of State, of the need for moral clarity, the need for uh, recognizing uh, the Palestinian people as a separate entity from Hamas. You know, and then you listen to Prime Minister Netanyahu talk about the comparative, the analog to ISIS, which U.S. officials have made as well, in eliminating uh, Hamas as ISIS was eliminated in his words. How does that work? given the area for which they will be operating in when an incursion begins. 
you know, part of how it works is diplomatically, and I think that was part of the part of the appeal from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. We heard it from Israel's president a little earlier on in the day that all those. All international countries should do what they did in, in uh, outlawing and in, in, uh, in, 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 I suppose the best, the best word to describe with ISIS is, is, is not giving them any foothold, any platform to, to speak. Um, so when, when I say some of the things that can be done diplomatically, I was spe speaking with sources in the region last night who say what they're trying to do is... They had a plan together that shuts down all of Hamas's international offices around the Arab region and other places where they may have them in the world as well. As it is with ISIS, ISIS has no foothold, no purchase to have a public platform in, in any countries around the world. And this is part of what the mechanism is to take on Hamas, is to, is to shut them down, is to essentially punish them politically as well as militarily, as well as what we heard from uh, Secretary Blinken there, describing the, the way that, that, that life should essentially be valued on both sides when the response is, is taken, uh, which, was, which was very clear in his language there, uh, apart from having obviously no daylight between him, between the United States and Israel on the moral clarity about what the barbarity of what Hamas has done and the response that is required. But I think part of that response comes by shutting down Hamas internationally and diplomatically in this region. I know that is something that's being worked on behind the scenes. And a small footnote to that, speaking earlier this year here to a senior UN representative in the region, very familiar with all the, uh, uh, the Palestinian military Look, we're very concerned because we are beginning to see an emergence of the ISIS brand of radical Islamist thinking and behavior. We're seeing their language, their propaganda. We're even seeing sort of potential small cells emerging um, in the Palestinian community. And that was giving him a huge degree of concern because it opened the door to exactly what we've seen here, this, this, this magnitude of barbarity that we haven't seen before here. And so clear that call, Nick, from Prime Minister Netanyahu for, to any entity, any country around the world, any regime that would harbor or aid Hamas in, in any way. Nick, thank you. We'll get back to you very soon. I just want to tell our viewers on the left side of your screen, those are live images of strikes in the port right outside of Gaza City, as well as we go to our colleague Jeremy Diamond. He joins us in Ashdod, Israel. Jeremy, what can you tell us from where you are? Well, listen, Bobby, I, I just want to come back to the comments that we just heard from Secretary Blinken and the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, the focus that both of them uh, dedicated to uh, the barbarity of those attacks by Hamas, uh, describing them in detail, talking about um, uh, the burning of civilians alive, babies slaughtered, women raped. This was from both Secretary Blinken and from the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. And I think it's really important to understand why they are doing that at this moment. And the reason why is that both of them are effectively providing the rationale for the next phase of Israel's military response. They are trying to build up 
public support for that response. And in addition to showing that there is no daylight between the United States uh, and Israel, they want uh, the public at large, both here in Israel, in the United States, but around the world, to understand why the casualties that will undoubtedly follow why those are going to happen. We do know that if Israel goes in with a ground invasion, not only will that result in additional uh, casualties to Israeli soldiers who go into Gaza, but that the civilian casualties inside of Gaza will continue to rise. And I think it's really important not to lose focus on uh, the fact that the Palestinian civilians inside of Gaza are so often caught in the crossfire. We know that given how congested uh, the city of Gaza is, the fact that Hamas operates within civilian areas, within residential buildings, and also the fact that the Israeli military typically does go ahead and strike those buildings and has increasingly been doing so uh, with less warning than they typically do, we have watched the civilian uh, uh, death toll inside of Gaza begin to rise. And there is no doubt that if Israel moves forward with a, uh, an, un, uh, uh, an invasion of Gaza unprecedented in scale, the death toll will rise on all sides. And so what you were hearing there as they try and summon the emotion of this moment, the emotion of the uh, attacks, the emotion that is felt here in Israel by everyone uh, who was uh, shocked by the senseless brutality of those murders, they are also trying to capture that, bottle it up, uh, and essentially send it out to the world before uh, the, the, the casualties that we will undoubtedly see in the next phase of this military response. All right, Jeremy, stay with us. I want to bring in Beth Sanner. Uh, Beth, when you listened, look, this is a quite literally a demonstration of unity of the U.S. and this administration being completely aligned with Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli government, the Israeli people, um, at least publicly, what did you take away from the remarks that you heard from both the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State? I, I think that what we just heard um, was perfectly said about what the goal of this was and to kind of inoculate as much as possible um, this operation against criticism. And just to, to point out a step further that, um, you know, the siege that is going on, they've shut down now in um, Gaza, all water and electricity, and the Red Cross um, is asking for um, just electricity and supplies to go to hospitals. That's been denied because um, this is like total war. And I think this shows that it's going to get trickier and trickier as um, this operation moves on, the images that will be coming out of civilians dying in Gaza will be complicated. Um, and I, I also want to get back to also the idea of the diplomatics going on here with um, the Iranian president and the Saudi leader, Mohammed bin Salman, talking last night and what and what's going to happen also with Blinken and the rest of this trip. Beth, what is going to happen with Blinken and the rest of this trip as he takes those other critical meetings in the region? Right. So so today he will meet with um, he'll go to Jordan. He'll meet with um, the crown prince or the king there. And also he'll meet with um, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, a, a very, um, you know, a very elderly and weak figure, mm -hmm. um, but the only other alternative to Hamas within this Palestinian construct, right? He runs the West Bank. Um, they don't control Gaza, but that is to try to keep this um, 
from escalating and also to show this, as Blinken really pointed out, the difference between Hamas, a terrorist group, and the Palestinian people. Um, the Iranians, as they spoke, to, as he spoke to Mohammed bin Salman, um, the readout from that, they were trying to really make the whole Palestinian question as a unified one, whereas um, the Saudi crown prince and Blinken and others are trying to really separate that out. And that's essential mm -hmm. to prevent escalation. It's essential to prevent the West Bank from blowing up. Right. Um, and, uh, and so that's really key. Thank you so much, Beth. Stand by as we bring back in uh, the spokesman uh, for the IDF, uh, Major Duran Spielman. I apologize for having to interrupt you, and I really appreciate you staying as we listen to those important remarks. Please finish answering the question that we had asked prior, which was the intelligence within Gaza. How confident are you that it is good enough to execute whatever is going to come next while protecting and rescuing those hostages? Well, as we were saying before that uh, incredible speech, and I'll just say as a soldier in the Israeli army, we have our moral clarity, but to hear the United States share its values of life and liberty, which are the same values that Israel shares of life and liberty is a great encouragement, I think, and an inspiration for the Israeli people who have a very long road ahead. Uh, I, regarding the issue of the hostages, uh, again, this is an incredibly personal issue, as both the secretary and the prime minister spoke about. We have increased our intel dramatically. We have robust intel that we've been gathering. We have a two generals that have established two different almost you would call them ministries that are dedicated to this. And as that increased, we've also increased our intelligence on the Nakba squads, who were, were really the front guard of that incurred into our uh, the Israeli territory sent by Hamas with that mission to destroy. We now have many of their names, their identities, their locations. And as we've said, they are the front guard that are responsible for carrying out this massacre. And none of them, no matter where they be, are going to be safe because we will hold them accountable for this massacre. Major Spielman, a big part of the last several days has been trying to identify accurate information, misinformation. There's a lot of rumors flying about, including what's happening to the north. We're learning right now that there are social media reports that there may have been Israeli strikes in Syria. Wondering if you have any information about that. What I can tell you uh, is I can't uh, really confirm a foreign media report. What I will tell you, and we've been very, very clear about this, and I, again, I think we heard this really alluded to in the speech that we were all just witness to, is that we will stand against any threat to our country, whether it be in Lebanon, Syria, or Gaza. Israel is not going to allow any of these threats to go unnoticed. We are at a war currently with Gaza because it is clear that it is truly the existence and continuation of the state of Israel is that at hand. And so uh, that is my answer to that question. I think we will see that moving forward uh, in the coming weeks and perhaps months. All right, Major Daron Spielman, uh, spokesman for the Israel Defense Forces. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. In ahead, you'll hear from an Israeli teenager who survived the attack by Hamas because he was shielded by his parents. Stay with us. Deborah and Shlomi Matus were killed by Hamas militants in their home while shielding their 16-year-old son, Rotem. And earlier this week, we heard from Deborah's father, Elon Troen, about that horrific day. We were on the phone with Deborah as she was killed. 
We were on the phone the entire day with our son, our grandson Rotem, as he lay first under her body and then found a place to escape under a blanket in, the, in a laundry. He was told not to speak, and therefore he was to hide and use texting. By the time he was rescued, he had 4% left in his battery. Rotem Matus and his sisters, Shir and Shaked, are with us now. And again, joining us also their grandfather, Elon Troen. There are not words to uh, describe how sorry we are. And I'm so grateful you can join us in helping honor the lives of your parents. Rotem, I know you're still recovering. How are you doing? I am. I'm doing very well. I'm able to walk now. A few days ago, I couldn't even stand. Um, the bullet inside my stomach has been taken out uh, via surgery, and uh, I'm feeling much, much better. We are showing, as we speak to you, these beautiful pictures of your parents. And it was so striking to hear your grandfather earlier this week describe what they did to save to save you and how your mother bore the brunt of the gunfire and did what every, you know, mother um, would do for their child. Could you help tell us about her and your father? Well, I can't really explain them in words, but they were the best. They did everything in their power to give us the life that they wanted us to have, they wanted to, us to be happy, to be whimsical, they wanted to be <laughs> joyful, they wanted us to be in peace, they didn't want us to be at a situation like this, and they wanted us to live more than anything. So, as you said, yeah, mom and dad, they sacrificed their lives to save me. Sheer. To you. Yeah. What would you like to share? Yeah. Um, I just want to say that um, we are very, very sad um, that our parents are gone. They were very, very brave. They were good people, and they didn't deserve anything. It was horrible. None of the people in Israel... None of the foreign citizens who were here and were taken deserved any of this. Um, um, sadly, um, we still have a chance to have a funeral um, for our parents. Um, and we're just still sitting and waiting to hear uh, anything about them. No, Shaked, not only did you lose your parents, but... You also had to learn, you learned that, that they were killed from your brother, Rotem, sending you that message. Those moments Yeah, for you. we both. Go ahead. It was, it was very, I didn't want to believe it. As I don't think anyone would ever want to believe it. The, the text message, it said, mom and dad are dead. Mom and dad are dead. Sorry. And that was when my service was gone and I was cut off. And I was left about 13, 14 hours in the safe room. Uh, I had no idea 
what happened to my parents if they really are gone. And I didn't know if my brother was still here. And and I was so worried and I was so scared. And we all we heard bombs everywhere and we heard shooting and we heard screams. And no one should ever have to go through that. Ever. No. Yeah. No, no, they should not. And I can see Rotem comforting you. And I'm so glad you all have each other. I know, Rotem, when you had surgery, you asked to keep the bullet that was removed from you. Yes. Why? I want to just keep it as a memory to never forget them and remember that even though it was the hardest and lowest point in, in my life, I found in it some hope that maybe I could live and share their memories and how I saw my parents with other people. They won't die there. They won't die. They will live on in memories and in stories. That's right. Ilan, what a family uh, you have. And I know you are so deeply grateful for them as you experience the anguish of losing your daughter. Your thoughts this morning? These kids are terrific. Yes, I'm sure you can see and, and everybody who's watching can see. What the, their parents did, Shlomi and Deborah, was very seriously, systematically, lovingly, and with great care and intelligence, create a family. Their life wasn't always so easy, um, but they overcame whatever obstacles they had in creating an absolutely beautiful family, a family that played together, that sang together, that uh, shared hopes together, and, and felt responsible for one another. And what's, I think, taking place here now is the beginning of building on those bonds that were so well established by their parents and enabling them to assist one another as they go forward in life. And they don't have to do it alone, and that's why I'm here. I represent five brothers and sisters, and I represent, I think, 16 cousins so far and uh, a parcel of great-grandchildren. The family is growing and it will live. And as Rotem has suggested, he wants to remember them living and sharing somehow in the lives that they will have. It's a large task, but we're up to it. Your bond is so clear, uh, even from this distance. Thank you all for being with us and may the memory of your parents be a blessing. Thank, Thank you. you. Just moments ago, Secretary of State Antony Blinken alongside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu comparing Hamas's brutality to the worst of ISIS. Babies slaughtered, bodies desecrated, young people burned alive, women raped, Parents executed in front of their children, children in front of their parents. How are we even to understand this, to digest this? 
visceral in its nature. Blinken arrived this morning in Tel Aviv to show the U.S. commitment to Israel after last weekend's attack and to help efforts to secure the release of roughly 150 hostages taken by Hamas, some of them believed to be American. He is soon expected to head to Jordan, where tomorrow he will meet uh, with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas and Jordan's King Abdullah. Joining me now from the White House is Principal Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer. John, I appreciate your time. I want to start with where, where Poppy left off in a very powerful interview. Uh, the, the death toll the secretary announced has gone up again uh, from 22 to 25. You guys have expected that uh, awful as it is. Do you have any more information about the number of Americans who are detained or could be, be held hostage right now and their condition? I, I don't have any uh, more detailed information about that other than that is uh, the, the number one uh, area of focus uh, for, for our embassy, for the experts who we have sent uh, to the region to uh, consult with their Israeli counterparts and advise them on uh, hostage uh, recovery uh, efforts. And, you know, this is uh, obviously an area of, of great concern uh, to all of us, uh, people who are stuck in this situation. It is about the worst uh, condition that you can imagine uh, being taken uh, from from a place where you're either traveling or live and, and dragged across the border into a hostile situation like this. And so this will remain an, an area of core focus and, and a focus of Secretary Blinken's meetings uh, while he is in uh, Jerusalem today. John, I think another focus of the secretary's meetings throughout the course of this trip will be uh potential for humanitarian corridors uh, or passages. Also, there are <clears throat> several hundred American citizens in Gaza right now. There's been a lot of conflicting accounts of what's happening in Rafah, the border crossing, uh, and what Egypt's role has been. I know you guys have been consulting behind the scenes. What is the status? Is that open should Americans in Gaza go there? It's important to keep in mind that there are uh, on the order of 2.3 million uh, people who live in Gaza, uh, very difficult living conditions. Uh, in the best of times, and this is pretty far uh, from the best of times. And so, uh, as the president said yesterday, this is a, a topic of direct conversation between the United States and the government of Israel. We are talking about options like uh, humanitarian quarters and safe zones, uh, options for people to be able to get out of Gaza uh, if they can. Uh, you know, the president has been clear that, that democracies like the United States and Israel are strongest uh, when they operate according uh, to the rule of law and the laws of war. And this will be an ongoing area of focus uh, between, uh, between us and them as we continue to work through this very challenging operational environment in which uh, the Israeli military will be fighting. John, there have been some reports that uh, Egypt had rejected the idea of a broader humanitarian corridor. Is there any truth to that? Uh, I, I will keep our conversations with the government of Egypt private, but I will say uh, that, that the best option, uh, most likely uh, the only option for people to get out of Gaza, will be through the, the Rafah crossing, which leads uh, into Egypt. We believe uh, that we will be able to work with the government of Egypt on an arrangement uh, that will have to be negotiated with the government of Israel as well. And this is something that we are uh, focused on in real time, uh, hour by hour and day by day. John, the secretary echoed what we heard from the president, both in, in the strength, I think, of his uh, support and unity with the Israeli people, with Prime Minister Netanyahu, but also in talking about the, the need for moral clarity and talking about trying to separate the Palestinian people from <clears throat> Hamas. Uh, do you believe that those calls are being heeded by the Israelis as they plan a military operation? Look, I'd say a few things. Again, 2.3 million people in Gaza. The vast majority of them have absolutely nothing to do with this conflict. I spent time in Gaza in 2009 during another war there. It made an impression on me just how challenging and how difficult people's lives are there, particularly in a situation like this under you know, a military operation. 
And so the fact that we're even having this conversation, uh, though, I think is the important part. The fact that this is a subject uh, not just between uh, staff on the uh, U.S. side and the Israeli side, between, but between the prime minister uh, and the president is a stark difference uh, from how Hamas operates. Hamas crossed into Israel with the express goal of killing as many Israelis, uh, military, civilians, uh, they didn't care. And now they have retreated into their territory, into the Gaza Strip, uh, with no uh, objective at all of avoiding uh, damage to their civilian population from, from what is to come. So the fact that this conversation is happening is important. We will largely keep the details uh, of it private, but it'll be an ongoing area uh, of, of direct uh, dialogue between the United States and Israel. John, that's a great point. You were there in 2009 and one of the two uh, Israeli incursions into the country. I think that one was, was 15 days. This one is uh, Israeli officials have said will be much larger uh, in the difficulty and complexity that comes with it. A, a longer term question, if I may, when Prime Minister Netanyahu talks about eliminating Hamas, crushing Hamas uh, akin to what was done with ISIS, what happens next? It, it is the, the governance structure in Gaza uh, what fills the vacuum there? So that is a very challenging question. Governance uh, of Gaza has been extremely challenging uh, since Hamas took over uh, back in 2005, 2006. Uh, and this is uh, another area that we will be uh, directly consulting with the Israelis uh, on. Uh, we, we probably have some time. This is an operation that is likely to unfold uh, over weeks, uh, if not longer. That's what the Israelis uh, have said. But the, the future governance of Gaza is one of the many significant challenges associated uh, with the current situation. Uh, the problem is that Hamas has proven themselves uh, unfit, unable uh, to govern uh, this territory in a way that, that can be acceptable to the Israelis, given what has just happened. That is what the Israeli government is saying, and it is now uh, going to be uh, the next challenge after this uh, complicated military operation uh, is completed, and we're probably a long way from that, uh, to figure out what the future of governance there looks like. Uh, the message of deterrence, which has been shown both by actions and by words from the president, the secretary of state, just about everybody across the administration, just saying flatly, don't. There are a number of different players in the region, all with uh, very specific interests here. If that warning is not heeded, what is the U.S. response? So one thing that the president doesn't do and that none of us are going to do on his behalf is, is sort of telegraph our next move or telegraph our, our punches. Uh, it is quite clear to anyone who might consider getting involved in this conflict that the United States has considerable uh, capabilities at our disposal, uh, not just uh, the carrier strike group that has been moved into the region, but a significant force posture that exists in the region uh, at all times. Uh, beyond that, uh, which we believe sends an unmistakable message, uh, I'm not going to get into what we might do in a, in a hypothetical situation. All right, John Fine, the Principal Deputy National Security Advisor. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This is CNN Breaking News. We are glad you're with us as we continue to follow the breaking news. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York, Aaron Burnett live near the Gaza border. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 3 p.m. in Tel Aviv, where moments ago, Secretary of State Antony Blinken vowed to stand behind and beside Israel as its war with Hamas intensifies. Hamas has only one agenda, to destroy Israel and to murder Jews. Israel has the right, indeed the obligation, to defend itself and to ensure that this never happens again. As the Prime Minister and I discussed, how Israel does this matters. And just as ISIS was crushed, so too will Hamas be crushed. And Hamas should be treated exactly the way ISIS was treated. 
Thank you, America, for standing with Israel today, tomorrow, and always. And this all comes as Israel continues to strike Gaza with artillery and those airstrikes, also cutting off supplies to food, uh, power, and water until the hostages are released. Secretary of State Blinken urging Netanyahu to take every precaution to prevent harm to innocent civilians in Gaza as Israel responds. And the humanitarian crisis there in Gaza is growing more dire. We know up to 150 hostages. That includes Americans still being held captive. Let's go to Aaron Burnett. She joins us again in Ashkelon. Aaron, what can you tell us? All right, well, we understand, obviously, those hostages right now, whereabouts uh, unknown, uh, status of any negotiations unknown. Uh, we do know, Poppy, that the Israeli Defense Forces are, are telling us that they believe that those hostages are being kept in various locations, most likely in tunnels under the ground by Hamas, uh, places that they have not known Hamas to use before. So they, d they do seem to have a feel and a sense for the situation, but they're not in one place, and that obviously complicates what you're dealing with uh, right now. As you referred to it, uh, the airstrikes are throughout the morning on Gaza. You hear those thuds in the distance from where we are now, and a lot of fire back and forth uh, from south of here, uh, just along that Gaza border. We're also understanding as Israeli Defense Forces, Phil and Poppy, are clearly uh, building up and posturing uh, for a possible ground assault, a full ground assault on Gaza. We don't just know that there's about 300,000, uh, you know, being massed uh, along that border. We also know that Israeli Defense Forces are sort of pushing that border out to create essentially a buffer zone for military operations. So uh, a lot of those areas that had been attacked, uh, kibbutzes uh, by the Hamas, militants over the weekend pushing out that barrier bit by bit uh, to keep it for Israeli military use as they obviously are clearly in a position in a position and preparing uh, for an assault and we're hearing that you hear that from Nick Robertson uh, miles from where we are that back and forth that heavy artillery strikes on Gaza we can hear those thuds now all of that going throughout the day here as it's uh, right now mid-afternoon here in Israel. Yeah, Aaron, a significant uptick, not just in airstrikes, but also we, as you were laying, Nick was laying out the use of artillery. Uh, you have been uh, split screen. You couldn't see it, Aaron, but we were showing the port next to Gaza City where it looked like there had been uh, a strike on some of the, the ships or boats in that area as well. You're looking at it right now. Aaron, I, I would ask, you were listening to the Secretary of State and the Prime Minister um, at this moment mm -hmm. where... It feels like everything is on the brink. And I think Israeli officials have been clear to you, have been clear to us, that that is definitely the case. What was your takeaway from those remarks? Well, there was no daylight between the two in how they described the atrocities that happened. Obviously, the words from Prime Minister Netanyahu came from, you know, sort of, deep. They came from deep, right? This is a profound impact for him uh, and the existence of, of this country where I'm standing now. So for him, use of words evil, barbarians, uh, different from Secretary Blinken, but the same description of the atrocities, the acts, uh, that there were people burned alive, uh, that parents were executed in front of their children, children in front of their parents. So they were very clear, no daylight. The U.S. has Israel's back. But I, I do think what you just played there as we began this hour from Secretary Blinken is also very significant, Phil. How Israel does this matters. That while the United States unequivocally has Israel's back, and he said that, we have your back, how Israel does this matters. That there's a distinction between Hamas, a repressive terrorist group ruling Gaza, and the civilians of Gaza. 
Now, of course, that distinction, as you know, that distinction is one that is impossible on the ground to draw because they are living amongst each other so densely packed uh, in Gaza City. And that is the challenge that they face as those troops mass along the border. The force of Israel overwhelming, right? But what do you do when you go in with that force, Phil? All right, Aaron, thank you very much. Stay with us. We're going to come back to you in a moment. I want to get straight to CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's live for us in Ashdod. She spent the day at one of the hard-hit kibbutzim not far from the border. Beria is a farming community where about, about a 1,000 people lived, and Saturday morning, more than 100 were murdered. Clarissa, what did you see there? Well, Phil, I think it's interesting that it took almost four days before the Israeli military even finally let journalists in uh, to Be'eri Kibbutz. And that's because they had been fighting pitched battles there, uh, really struggling to control and contain that situation. And the scenes of destruction that you see when you arrive at Be'eri are just mind-blowing, frankly. But really, it was the conversations we had with some of the survivors who have been moved to a hotel a couple of hours away that are the most chilling and the most haunting. Take a listen. It was 7.11 a.m. on Saturday morning when the militants arrived at Be'eri Kibbutz. Surveillance footage shows them lying in wait until a car arrives. They shoot the driver and enter the compound. More poured in on motorcycles, eerily at ease and in no apparent hurry. Thomas Hand heard the gunshots and immediately thought of his eight-year-old daughter, Emily, who was staying with a neighbor. She doesn't do it very often, but unfortunately that night, that particular night, the Friday night, she went to sleep at her friend's house. For 12 hours, he says he was pinned down under heavy gunfire, unable to reach his daughter, as Hamas went door to door, executing his neighbors. Waiting. I'm thinking the army are going to be here soon. You know, just hold on a bit longer. And longer. And longer. By the time the military gained control of Be'eri, this is what remained of the once tranquil community. Late Wednesday afternoon, Israeli forces let journalists in for the first time after days of pitched battles. I saw how the soldier fight here, and I fight here myself in the first hour, only to get inside to the kibbutz, only to come from, you know, apartment to apartment. It took a lot, a lot, a lot of time. Does that weigh on your conscience to know how long it took? You know, we have a very difficult question to ask ourselves. Now we look forward to defend the people, to to take the survival out of it, and to switch ourselves from defense to offensive operation. I'm sure that we ask ourselves all the difficult uh, uh, question after it. For now, there are more pressing questions. The bodies of more than 100 residents have been recovered, but the army says that many more are still missing. You can see the amount of blood. This was a massacre. And the full scale of the horrors that transpired here are just starting to come to light. Pictures, family photographs on the wall. Thomas waited two agonizing days before getting the news. They just said, 
we found Emily. Uh, she's dead. And I went, yes! I went, yes! And smiled. Because that is the best news of the possibilities that I knew. That was the best possibility that I was hoping for. She was either dead or in Gaza. And if you know anything about what they do to people in Gaza, that is worse than death. That is worse than death. The way they treat you. They'd have no food, they'd have no water. She'd be in a dark room filled with Christ knows how many people and terrified every minute, hour, day and possible years to come. So death was a blessing, an absolute blessing. Tom, uh, after saying that, Poppy and Phil, he, he looked at me and he said, what kind of a crazy world are we living in that, that a father would say something like this? But this is the reality as we are experiencing it. He said that many people in that kibbutz feel uh, the same way, but obviously hard for anyone, let alone any parent, to really wrap their heads around the, the enormity of something like that. And I should add that the Be'eri Kibbutz now has become a staging ground uh, for uh, an artillery brigade. Um, that whole area now, as you've heard and been reporting on this hour, has been turned into a sort of no-go military zone as everybody waits uh, the specter, obviously, of a potential ground invasion. Uh, continuing to grow and people here just waiting to see what the next day will bring. They have been steeled for the fact that this is going to be a long uh, fight, that it is not going to be an easy one, um, but still so many questions as to what shape it takes next and what that means for the hostages who remain, many of whom are from that kibbutz Be'eri. Larissa, Emily, uh, I think really embodies what we just heard echoed from, as we look at her here, from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Secretary Blinken when they described in detail the young lives brutally taken that day. I wonder if Tom, her father, said anything to you about what he hopes to see. Nothing can bring his daughter back, but in response, in her memory. He... He didn't talk so much about what he hopes to see. He did talk about the fact that there were other children um, believed to have been killed in that kibbutz. They haven't yet been identified yet, um, which makes it obviously much more difficult to, to know the exact details, the exact numbers. And I would just say more broadly that there has been a real lack of clarity, and that may be due to like continued confusion around the issue of how many people were killed versus how many people were captured versus mm -hmm. how many people may still be alive. Um, so he really, in this moment, I think, is focused on being strong yeah. for his two older children uh, who are flying from overseas uh, to be with him now. But let's be clear, as you saw, he is a broken man and, uh, and, there, and there are other parents going through that same pain. Larissa Ward, thank you very much.
Let's go back to Erin. She joins us now in Ashkelon, Israel, near the border. You know, Erin, you were the one who pointed out to us the importance of those remarks from both Secretary Blinken and from Netanyahu this morning, the importance of saying those things out loud in unison. And then Clarissa's reporting there with Emily's father exemplifies that. Yeah, I mean, it is impossible to comprehend and the loss, talking to parents who are losing their children. Um, it is it is impossible to truly comprehend what they are going through and the true shock that they feel, even as the world is focused on what they will do next and how they will respond, the profound shock and loss and, and brokenness uh, that people here feel. Uh, right now, uh, there, there are huge clouds of smoke over Gaza. Again, ongoing strikes throughout this day. It is now mid-afternoon here in Israel near that Gaza border, but those uh, huge plumes of smoke from Israeli Defense Forces strikes across Gaza. Uh, Tal Heinrich joins me now. She is the spokesperson for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And, and Tal, I, I very much appreciate your time. Looking at these images over Gaza, hearing the thuds is actually, we just heard one right now as I'm speaking to you, of explosions uh, in Gaza. Do you anticipate this continuing at this rate, these sorts of nonstop, nonstop strikes on Gaza as Israel continues to build its forces up along the border? Erin, we do not know how long this operation in Gaza will take. We are very clear about our goals uh, in this counteroffensive taking place right now. Um, first and foremost, we said that we want to make sure that Israel's territory is secured that all the territory is under Israeli control, true, and also uh, that the border fence is protected. We have managed to uh, reach this, uh, but as you know, and you're following the, the reports, I know uh, that CNN is covering it, um, there, are, there are certain attempts to uh, you know, try to infiltrate, if it's from the north, we've had over the past several days, so that is uh, our first goal. Our second goal is to make sure that Hamas, by the end of this uh, war, will have neither the military capabilities nor the motivation to hurt us as they did um, in the coming decades. And our win, our victory mm -hmm. by the end of this, and again, it will take as long as it will take, as the prime minister said, uh, we will be remembered for the generations to come. Tal, you mentioned uh, the North, and obviously uh, there have been reports of skirmishes uh, rockets from, from the north. There was also uh, r reports from the IDF, right, that there had been rockets launched from Syria and today reports of Israeli reprisals on targets inside Syria. From your understanding right now, are these opportunistic attacks coming from the direction of Syria and Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, or is there any coordination between any of these? I cannot comment on the specifics of uh, these reports that you just mentioned, but as uh, President Biden said, as Prime Minister Netanyahu said, we tell our enemies not only Hamas in the southern front, but also in the north and other state actors like Iran do not try us. Uh, Secretary Blinken just said it in the shared uh, statement in the press conference with Prime Minister Netanyahu, he said it very simple, don't. And uh, we hope that they're getting this message loud and clear because Israel is ready, um, the IDF is ready, 
everyone in this country either knows someone who is a soldier, knows someone who's been abducted, knows someone who's been hurt, yes. injured, knows someone who was killed. We are a nation in deep mourning right now, but uh, our res resolve is very clear. This is time for moral clarity. Both the secretary said it, Prime Minister Netanyahu said it, and um, we know what we're doing and we're coming after them. We yes. will make sure that they will lack the motivation to hurt us again. It has also, we understand uh, that, that Israel has made it clear that there will not be electricity, there will not be fuel, no supplies for Gaza until the hostages are released. Can you report any progress on negotiations with Hamas? Because obviously there's only so long a civilian population could go without those things, without grievous loss and humanitarian crisis. Is there anything that you can tell us about the status of the hostages? Well, I cannot expand on the status of the hostages, uh, but what I can tell you is that we call on Hamas to release the hostages um, unconditionally. And the prime minister was very clear. Uh, they should not dare to try to hurt the hostages. We are uh, going to win this war and Hamas is going to pay a very heavy price. Both the prime minister and the secretary, by the way, if you listen carefully to his statements, compared Hamas to ISIS. And this is exactly what this war is about. It's a war yes. between the civilized world represented by Israel here and uh, Hamas's savages. Tao, a follow to that, though, of course, Secretary Blinken also said while he completely made those those uh, those compared to ISIS and said the United States has Israel's back. He also said how Israel does this matters, uh, that striving for a different standard and a value in human life is what distinguishes a democracy uh, from the forces of terror that were just unleashed upon Israel. When it comes to Gaza, do you have any confidence that you will be able to distinguish between innocent people, innocent children there, and Hamas operatives if it comes to Israeli forces on the ground in Gaza? Aaron, the IDF has been very clear, and the Prime Minister said it, that we call on Palestinians in those areas from which Hamas operates, from where it has its uh, military depots and, and strongholds to uh, move out of these areas. They know where these areas are. We know that they know where these areas are. We're calling on them to evacuate. And every, uh, every kind of byproduct of this war is uh, related to Hamas directly. All right, Tal, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Tal Heinrich, of course, as we said, is the spokesperson for the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, Poppy and Phil. All right. Thank you, Aaron Burnett. We're definitely going to be coming back to you, so stay with us. Meantime, hundreds of thousands of Israeli troops massing near the Gaza border with tanks and artillery. As Prime Minister Netanyahu vows to crush Hamas. We're going to break down the urban warfare challenges Israeli forces could face in a potential ground incursion. Stay with us. Just moments ago, our CNN team saw several howitzers firing a barrage of artillery into Gaza from outside Sterot on Thursday. CNN's international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, filed this report. 
Yeah, early this morning there was a salvo of rockets coming in from uh, coming in from Gaza. The Iron Dome defenses shield intercepted them. However, there were there one property was hit. We understand that there were some civilian casualties at that property. Um, but where we're at, located right now, just outside of Starod, about three miles, I would say, two to three miles from the border, from this location to Gaza. And what you're looking at here is Israeli defense force heavy howitzers firing artillery shells into Gaza at Hamas targets in Gaza. Um, this is a very big concentration of, of uh, Israeli firepower here. We covered the uh, situation with Gaza in 2021, where there was exchange of artillery fire rockets by, uh, out by Hamas. This is on a scale just waiting for that explosion there. This is on a scale much bigger. We're seeing. That was our Nick Robertson reporting. We'll get back to him soon. These are live pictures out of Gaza City. In the middle of the afternoon there, smoke plumes rising and potential ground incursion there uh, raises so many questions about the challenges of urban warfare. Let's bring in CNN military analyst, former member of the Joint Staff at the Pentagon, Colonel Cedric Layton, and Israeli Special Operations veteran, and law enforcement trainer Aaron Cohen back with us at the table. That is the incredibly complex task ahead, Colonel, is not only urban warfare, but urban warfare with 150 hostages. And now, and we'll get into this with Aaron, uh, Israeli operatives also inside of, potentially undercover, inside of Gaza. Yeah, absolutely, Poppy. And, you know, you're looking at so many different uh, things here, but uh, the real things uh, that we have are those challenges that you talked about. Uh, so first and foremost, you've got all kinds of things that uh, the Hamas uh, or anybody else, for that matter, who is opposing the Israeli forces as they're coming in, could do. So we've got rockets uh, that could uh, be fired at them. You've got drones that could observe them. Of course, you could do counter-drone activity against those, and you could have your own drones, which the Israelis certainly do. Then, most importantly, you have tunnels. Uh, and uh, I know Aaron mentioned uh, some of this earlier, uh, but there are going to be a lot of tunnels in Gaza. It's not just in the border area, but throughout the city of Gaza and and in other areas, uh, tunnels are very, very important uh, for their defenses and possibly as locations where the hostages are. Anti-armor attacks are possible. Uh, they're going to use snipers. Look at, you know, for example, buildings like this one. That would be a perfect window for a sniper to shoot from. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that you're looking at. And, of course, using the hostages as human shields. Those are the critical elements that uh, the Israeli forces are going to have to really consider as they go in and they move forward with every facet of this operation. Aaron, there is a reason why there has been a reticence to uh, launch incursions. There have only been two, I think, 2008, 2009, and 2014. Um, they've, I think, 15 and 19 days. This is going to be, according to the IDF, much larger, take a lot more time. And to the colonel's point, there are hostages by the dozens involved here. The level of preparation the IDF has for this kind of fighting, given those dynamics, how extensive is it? Well, Israel has a lot of experience with urban warfare. Um, and what that means is 90-degree angles. Uh, every angle is a point of cover. Uh, every angle is a place to stay concealed. So every room has a dead corner when you walk into a room. And what Israel is really, really good at, did a lot of this in my unit, uh, which 
operates plainclothes and uh, in a SWAT capacity, if you will, uh, when you're going after terrorists, is being able to move around those angles with the least amount of exposure possible and with the most amount of cover so that you have good shots, and I don't mean to be graphic, but have straight shots with 90% of your body covered. And Israel invented a room entry system called um, limited penetration. And it allows the Israeli operatives from the four major special operations units, which is the General Staff Reconnaissance Unit, BB's unit, the Entebbe unit, uh, Sheldag, which is the Air Force Special Operations Unit. Sheldag in English means Kingfisher. So imagine those missiles that are coming down strategically and selectively. There's guys on the ground putting those missiles into those Hamas infrastructure buildings so as to reduce collateral damage to civilian buildings. Remember, Hamas is going to bring civilians to those rooftops, uh, uh, and essentially they're trapping them in Gaza. That's a separate comp. We'll get to that. Uh, the other unit is the Israeli Shayetik uh, Shaloshisle, which is the S-13 or the Israeli SEALs. That unit's conducting reconnaissance operations right now along that coastline to be able to map the, the karst topography so that we can feed that back to, those, uh, to the Givati Brigade, which is staged with those 300,000 reservists on that, uh, on that border with Gaza. And then you've got um, other elements combined, but that limited penetration room clearing technique, which all of these special ops units are trained in, allows an Israeli special forces operative to clear 90% of the room without ever having to step foot in it. And why is that important for terrorists? Because they will booby trap. They want Israel to get sucked into this monster vacuum. And so these techniques have been designed specifically to do what we call in Hebrew a srika, a, a zira, or a safety clear. But they have to do it quickly. It's, it's a lot of training, but it allows these guys to be able to fight safer. And so that's a big piece of how they're going to go into Gaza and be able to clear these pockets, uh, do it safer, but do it with a high degree of aggression. Aggression is a tactic. It, it has to be, uh, especially when you're getting pulled into this pressure cooker. So that limited penetration is a big one, and all these units are getting ready to deploy that. Aaron Cohen, we appreciate your expertise. Colonel Layton, thank you as well. President Biden warning Iran to, quote, be careful after Hamas attacked Israel. We'll break down the conflicting reports of whether Iran knew about the attack beforehand. And we'll ask former National Security Advisor John Bolton how the U.S. should respond in his view. That's next. Welcome back. A critical question lingers about Hamas's deadly attack on Israel. Was Iran directly involved in that attack? The answer for the moment depends on who you ask, Iran denies that, although it celebrated the attack, the Iranian regime, I should note. A senior Israeli official says Iran was aware of the operation and effectively gave the, quote, green light. The United States, on the other hand, has gathered intelligence that suggests Iran was, like high-ranking officials in Iran, were surprised by the attack. That's according to multiple sources familiar with that U.S. intel. And a Hamas official in Lebanon did not mention Iran's awareness, but said, quote, even our allies did not know about the zero hour, close quote, of the attack. And now as President Biden faces calls to take new action against Iran from some, this is his message for the regime. Already we're uh, 
We're surging additional military assistance to the Israeli Defense Force, including ammunition, interceptors to replenish the Iron Dome. And we've moved the U.S. carrier fleet to the eastern Mediterranean, and we're sending more fighter jets there in that region. And made it clear, made it clear to the Iranians, be careful. Joining us now, former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton, appreciate you being here in that capacity and your experience as ambassador to the United Nations as well. But let's begin with Iran, because I think everyone knows where you stand on Iran. We'll never forget the op-ed you wrote in 2015 to stop Iran, bomb Iran. But I am struck by how differently even members of Congress see the intelligence out of Iran uh, that, that they were briefed on yesterday. Should the U.S. be exceedingly cautious at this moment? Well, I think you have to look at particular elements of intelligence within the broader strategic framework. And I think what happened over the weekend was an Iranian attack on Israel using Hamas as a surrogate. No question. The, uh, none, whatever. The only real question now is whether Hezbollah will join in at an appropriate time. Iran has supplied enormous quantities of weapons, material, financing, training, to both Hamas and Hezbollah for decades. Uh, really, they formed Hezbollah in the early 1980s. Uh, Hamas had a different origin. It's Sunni, not Shia. But in the last 10 years, they have been largely a surrogate for Iran. And many leading Hamas officials are embedded with Hezbollah in Lebanon and Turkey. Iran did not provide all that material, billions of dollars worth over the years, so that Hamas or Hezbollah could deploy it when they saw fit. They gave them those weapons so that they would be deployed when Iran saw fit. And let's not forget, this attack occurred on the 50th anniversary of the yes. Yom Kippur War. This is not accidental. But I just want to be clear, that is uh, in opposition to what multiple sources tell CNN, the U.S. intelligence is. I'm just asking, you don't have any intelligence to that effect, do you? Well, they, they, the administration certainly isn't sharing intelligence right. with me. I just want to make that, it clear for our viewers. But in, in the interest of national security, I'd be prepared to buy a copy of the Wall Street Journal for the White House that will show them their story from Sunday, yeah. quoting sources in Hezbollah Which we have not confirmed. and Hamas. That clear. And now there's a new Wall Street Journal story today that says there's an intelligence estimate that says, indeed, uh, Iran did know that. Look, Israeli and American intelligence missed the attack. So why should anybody su be surprised that they missed the piece of information about Iranian approval? They missed the entire haystack. Why should they be surprised, anybody be surprised, they missed the needle? I do want to point out, we're watching live pictures of Gaza City. You see the smoke plumes. It has been uh, of a particular degree of intensity over the course of the last several minutes. It has been continuous over the last several days. But you can see the realities of what's happening on the ground uh, right now. I just want to swing back around to this quickly. The direct connection between Iran and Hamas, I don't think there's any question about uh, the level of support that Iran has provided. I think 100 to 200 million is often the number that's tossed around. U.S. officials uh, have labeled them a, a terrorist uh, organization as well. It, it is a different level of connection than Hezbollah has. I think the Sunni and Shia difference, as you point out, is notable. Uh, and I think, I guess my question beyond the Wall Street Journal story is just deciding this must be what they wanted. Iran, to some degree, thrives on uh, the insecurity that these groups and their ability to create terror terror presents. This is a very different situation. This is a potential geopolitical realignment, depending on how this turns out. You well, think Iran, Iran wants that? Of course. This, this is a struggle within Islam. 
between the Shia side and the Sunni side. Israel happens to be in the center of it. Uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, said uh, a day or two ago, I kissed the hands of the people who did this. Uh, you know, how exactly it was done? Was there a written execute order uh, delivered by the Iranians? We don't know that. But if anybody thinks that Hamas acted on their own or without approval from Iran, I think they misunderstand why Iran has given them all these weapons over the years. And let's also be clear, they fired thousands of rockets into Gaza, from Gaza into Israel. Hezbollah is reported to have tens of thousands of rockets. I've seen public reports of 100,000 or more. So uh, this is uh, no cost to Iran. No Iranians have died, but a thousand or more Israelis have died. They've used Hamas as cannon fodder. And I, I think both Israel and the United States need to take that into account strategically. The administration is twisting itself into a pretzel to avoid pointing the finger at Iran, because they know if they do, then they're going to have to do something. Is it not important to be absolutely sure? This is not a court of law. Uh, the, the thousand well, Israelis who were killed, that's be. right. But where did the weapons come from? This is like saying if, uh, uh, if, if you see uh, a, somebody give somebody else a gun uh, and insist mm -hmm. that they actually have to pull the trigger before mm -hmm. they're an accessory to murder. Can I ask you, um, it's very notable that Secretary Blinken, did you see the remarks? I you did. saw them. So the notable that he added in standing side by side, no daylight between he and Netanyahu, but also saying how Israel does this matters. A real question of what is next and how it will be carried out. Well, I think it's going to be very difficult in Gaza when you have terrorists who are not only willing to commit terrorism against the Israelis, but against their own people by storing missiles, ammunition in schools and churches and mosques, when they've used their own people as human shields in the past, when they're doing it right now. Uh, th this is not going to be easy. And I think that comes d d directly from the Iranians as well. This is where they started the revolution by seizing our uh, embassy employees back in 1979. This is uh, state-sponsored terrorism and, and the Iranians support it. I'll just say it again. The Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader, those words mean something, said, I kiss the hands of the, of the Hamas people. And uh, the, the administration... Uh, I think sent a craven signal to the Iranians by buying six American hostages to the tune, five American hostages to the tune of six billion dollars, 1.2 billion apiece. That's the price on the Americans now held by Hamas, uh, and by covering up uh, something I'm not sure has ever been reported on CNN. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but that the chief Iranian nego uh, negotiator with Iran for the administration, Rob Malley, had his security clearance lifted by the State Department's Bureau of Diplomatic Security in April. The White House has stonewalled that. They have resisted even evidence uh, printed in Semaphore on the website and tablet magazine, magazine of, an, of an Iranian influence operation, uh, some of whose members are still employed by the United States government. Uh, one of the least reported stories by the big media in the country today. This, just, this is a very serious I situation. I understand what you're saying. Uh, CNN reported on Rob, Rob Malley, both the investigation and losing his security clearance. I think we actually broke some of those stories as well. But to the broader point you're trying to make, two things. One, it's not a court of law, but it is American lives. And I think caution, whether or not you agree with it, uh, based on the last 20 years, I think there's some rationale for that to some degree. But also uh, on the, the prisoner exchange um, the counter is Americans are coming home and seeing their families. And, and more and, Americans are in danger now, aren't they? 
your blue passport is now worth $1.2 billion. The responsibility of the president is to take care of all Americans. And we obviously feel for the people who are, who are hostage, whose, whose families are worried about them. What about the Americans who have just been taken hostage? What about other Americans who will be uh, taken hostage? Uh, the, 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 the issue is not whether Israel strikes Iran right now, right. not today, not tomorrow. Do it at a time of its choosing. But right now, Iran is getting this for free. And the lesson is we are so cautious uh, that, that we're not even willing to go back at least so far to announce we're going to enforce the sanctions which remain in effect against Iran and which they've been violating with impunity right. during this administration. And there's a bipartisan move on Capitol Hill to do just that, which will be interesting to watch as well. Ambassador, we're out of time, but we do appreciate it as always. Be Thank you. Well, this morning, Israeli strikes over Gaza, Israel vowing no electricity, water or fuel for Gaza until all the hostages are returned safely. A look at the devastation inside Gaza. Next. Happening now, Israeli strikes over Gaza. At least 1,300 people have been killed in Gaza, more than 6,000 injured, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Israel continues a total blockade of food, fuel and supplies now into Gaza and health officials there are warning the hospital system is on the brink of collapse. Ben Wiedemann joins us from southern Lebanon. But Ben, you have reported extensively throughout Gaza in prior conflicts. So you know better than almost anyone in this world outside of those living there right now what this total blockade means in the next 48, 72 hours for lives. I mean, already the main power plant for Gaza Poppy has gone down yesterday afternoon at 2 p.m. And what we're hearing is in the hospitals, for instance, they're running out of the fuel for the generators they use as a backup when the supply, the municipal connection goes down. So what we understand is that uh, they're, uh, they're going to have trouble basically being hospitals. In fact, uh, there's a statement from uh, the Red Cross which came out, and I'll read it to you. As Gaza loses power, hospitals lose power, putting newborns and incubators and elderly patients on oxygen at risk. Kidney dialysis stops and x-rays can't be taken. Without electricity, hospitals risk turning into morgues. So the situation already dire is getting worse by the minute. Now, just sort of a bit of personal perspective, I can tell you every time you go to Gaza, wherever you go, there are kids everywhere. There are so many kids that schools run in two shifts to provide them with education. Uh, 40% of the population is under the age of 15. So when we're talking about Cutting off food, cutting off water, cutting off electricity and fuel. Basically, you're talking about 40 percent of the population, which has no say in this current mess, is going to suffer. The population density in Gaza is 21,000 people per square mile. That's six times the density of Washington, D.C. So in addition to all of the things that have been cut off that are not available or are running out in Gaza, you have the definite, almost the inevitable fact that Israel is going to be launching a massive ground invasion of this small strip of land with just two million people on it. So I can tell you, most people in, in Gaza don't even support Hamas. They're sick of it. They, they've suffered under it for years. But now they are paying the price 
uh, for this war in ways that I think it's hard to even convey, especially given the fact that we can't be in Gaza ourselves. The Israelis obviously closed, closed off all access. The Egyptians uh, have as well. Poppy? Ben, thank you for that perspective. It is incredibly important for people to understand. Secretary of State Antony Blinken pledged that the United States would never falter from its support for Israel and compared Hamas to ISIS. Next, we'll speak to someone who knows the brutality of Hamas militants firsthand. After they nearly killed her in 2010, her harrowing story ahead. Not even a week after Hamas's horrific terror attack on Israel, the war is intensifying and Israel is pressuring Hamas with an unrelenting bombing campaign in Gaza. There are still up to 150 people being held hostage and Hamas is threatening to execute them on camera. As we hear the stories coming out of Israel, our next guest says the trauma she suffered from a Hamas attack more than a decade ago is resurfacing. Tal Hartuv and her friend Christine Lucan who was Christian, were on a hike in Jerusalem in 2010 when two Hamas members, disguised as Israeli police, brutally attacked them. And then uh, I see this light out of the corner of my eye. And it's not God, and it's not my life flashing before me. You know, it's the sun on his machete. And I realize he's going to behead me. I just realized then somehow that the only that people die with their eyes open and I must play dead. So I made a moral choice and I tried not to move and I kept my eyes open and I watched like two meters away, no more no more than two meters. Christine was on her back and he's hacking her up. The attackers left, but as Tall laid there playing dead, already stabbed multiple times with the machete, they came back. One flipped her over and stabbed her one more time in the chest, just millimeters from her heart. We want to warn you, the pictures you are about to see are graphic. Tall was left with 13 machete wounds, more than 30 broken bones, a crushed sternum, a collapsed lung, and many more injuries. She was able to carry herself all the way to her car, barefoot, with her hands still bound. She says she just wanted to die somewhere where her body would be found. Unfortunately, her friend Christine did not survive the attack. Tal Hartuv joins us now. It's important to note, not just a survivor, she's an educator for the Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, and Jerusalem. Um, I, I, I see your reaction. I can't imagine what the memories of, of your experience uh, bring back to you, bring forth to you, but particularly in, in this moment. What has this week been like for you? It's been hell on earth. <clears throat> um, at the moment, I'm feeling uh, anxious, grief-stricken, heartbroken, traumatized, and also resolved, determined, full of hope, because I think I belong to the most beautiful and amazing people in the entire history of the universe. And as I was just coming home today, I saw the streets where with, there were children out there with Israeli flags and the amount of philanthropic work going on and volunteering is absolutely incredible. And I'm telling you, we cannot afford to lose this war, all right? Because if Israel loses a war, the whole of Western civilization loses too. And the only reason I flinched, uh, you introduced me as the, from Yad Vashem, but I'm not speaking on behalf of Yad Vashem, that must be very, very clear. 
I'm speaking as an independent civilian and a survivor of a brutal machete attack. Oh, I, I completely understand. Didn't mean to attribute that to be the case. Uh, but I also, the, the Yad Vashem is an extraordinarily important place uh, for people to recognize. To the point that you made um, about how you're feeling, particularly the second half, the, the, the resiliency, that it's what we're seeing. It's almost the, the through line of what we're seeing from the entire, not just Israeli population, but also American Jews as well, the, the kind of fortitude for what comes next. Why do you think that is? There is a fortitude. Well, I tell you why it is concerning the, the Jewish people, because we've had 3,000 years of this, all right? I mean, these pogroms, and this is a pogrom in every sense, These and the Secretary of State also spoke about that. These pogroms are uh, nothing new. They began in the seventh century with the rise of Islam. And at this point, I'll do a segment and tell you all that it was a Muslim surgeon who saved my life and that more Muslims have been murdered by Islamic terrorists than any other ethnic group. All right. But the Jewish people have been slaughtered by Muslim terrorists for hundreds of years, by Christians in the Crusades, by Nazi Europe and their collaborators. We're used to that and we've always had to reinvent ourselves. In fact, one of your reporters, Joanne Littman, wrote a book about reinvention, and that's exactly what Israel has had to do time and time and again. And following this absolute savagery, absolute savagery that my people have witnessed, this is a, uh, what do you call uh, You're at the crossroads. We are, I, forgive me for taking over the interview, but I, I've only got one chance. This is not a war against Israel and Hamas. That, it, it's on a micro level it is, right? This is a war against savagery or civilization. These are the sides, talking about both sides, the whataboutism. It's savagery or civilization. It's, it's evil versus good. It's day versus night. It's cruelty versus kindness, or it's, it's life versus death. And I have to tell you with all respect, Phil, I mean, really, CNN, I can see how, how much PTSD your own reporters have. Now, where, and I, as an ex, from my experience, I only see one way that this stuff will stop. All right. First of all, and it will relate to the good American public, that there is no moral equivalent to innocent Gazans being killed by Israeli bombs than 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 Jewish babies being beheaded and families being burned. Okay, one is a case of murder, the other case is a, a kill. And we I think the way through this is to stop the moral equivalency that people might do by providing platforms to the other side, because the only other side is wickedness. It's absolute wickedness. And the other thing I see, I got a text from a friend of mine, a Jewish woman in Britain, and she said, Pal, my children are terrified in London. Why? Because you, you have freedom of speech, and America is the greatest democracy in the world, and America should allow freedom of speech. But with freedom of speech comes responsibility. And if what you are espousing is causing people to be terrified and feel that their lives are threat, and they really are under threat, then these same protesters in the name of free speech should be arrested and charged with incitement to terrorism. I mean that, and I mean that for the goodness of the Muslim community as well, because there are so many decent, wonderful Muslim people who are terrified now of being associated with these barbarians. You can't have the cake and eat it too. There has to be very, very moral clarity here.
not giving platforms to the second side, not this what about. You know, it's like saying, well, what was Israel, Israel wearing? It's like the Me Too movement where you blame the victim. I'm just passionate about this. No, you know? I, I, I understand. And, and with both personal and lived experiences uh, that underscore that passion, I, I would note that you point out that Muslim friends of yours that don't want to be associated with this, I think Gazan civilians don't want to be associated with this either. They're, they don't have anywhere to go. And that's not a, an equivalency issue. We've only got 20 seconds left. I understand this is a much broader, longer, and more complex debate. I, I think it's not even a debate. Let me talk for 20 seconds. We've only got 20 seconds, Cecil. Let's say this. One more thing I'd like to see. I'd like an inquiry to UNRWA, where have all their millions of dollars gone when they're supposed to be providing education to the Palestinians? And the UNRWA education, what is the fruit of it? It's these barbarians who crossed over our border and murdered my people. Tal Hartov, uh, we appreciate your personal story and sharing it. Uh, Thanks so much for your time. And thanks to all of you for being with us today. We continue to follow the breaking news all day here on CNN. News Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.